This weather report comes to you from the Government Weather Bureau. We take you now to the Meridian Room in the Hotel Park Plaza in downtown New York, where you will be entertained by the music of Raymond Raquello and his orchestra. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. There's an update on the Dear David story, and this time, Adam Ellis claims to have captured Dear David on camera. Adam Ellis, an illustrator, says he's being haunted by the ghost of a little boy named Dear David. David appeared to Adam in his dream. The Twitter thread where Adam shares his paranormal encounters in his apartment has gone viral. About a week ago, I received an email from a subscriber asking me to go and check out a guy called Adam Ellis's Twitter page, I think it was, and his Dear David ghost story. But since that email, I've had like 15, 20 different people ask me to look at it, and it sounds like it's going to be fucking creepy. And although I actually don't really know what it is apart from this guy has... He reckons he has like a ghost in his house. I believe that there's some like videos and some pictures or something like that to kind of show some of the progression of what's been going on. Okay, I'm getting slightly freaked out right now. So everyone's... Oh, keep checking on the Dear David uh, story posts, whatever, on Twitter. I look out and I think, well, it's me and Adam. It's me, it's me and him. We're, we're both going to be killed by, by David. I'm, I'm done. We now return you to the music of Ramon Raquello playing for you in the Meridian Room of the Park Plaza Hotel situated in downtown New York. Have you heard the story of... And written on the wall... And everyone blood. has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother, this happened to my brother. telling you stories of the old... Family. There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello, and welcome to the Just A Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week, we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again, what our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. I want to welcome all of you back to the show. And I want to encourage you all to try a new accessory this season. I think you can pull it off. I know you've been contemplating it. Whatever you've been stalking, the thing that you keep going and looking at and going, I don't know if I can pull it off, you can pull it off. Whether it's a fantastic hat or a coat with a very loud collar or just a scarf i'm going for the handlebar mustache you're working on that i see that interesting things with your facial hair is a fine fine way to accessorize other things you can do while you're growing out your handlebar mustache or not (laughs) or you cannot Or go on to iTunes, leave us a rating or review. We always appreciate that. You can also reach out to us on social media at Just a Story Pod on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all that fun stuff. You can also check out our website at justastorypod.com. And there you will find links to our merchandise store where we have merchandise available for people who are interested in merchandise. You can also find links to our Patreon page, which is a great way to help support the show. Yes, and that's a great way to support the show. If you don't want to buy anything sold or bought or sell anything bought or sold, or you just want to be a kickboxer. You can do it. Just crank up the Peter Gabriel. Everyone knows that's the secret to life. But yes, you can find our Patreon page, and there you can go and become a sustaining member of the Just a Story podcast army. Do we have a thing? What do we call our listeners? Sure. Army. Horde. Horde? I don't want to be part of a horde. I'm sorry. What about the leader swarm? of the horde. Okay. 
swarm sure. conspiracy yes. of ravens. <laughs> you can also reach out to us at the Urban Legend Hotline. You can't do it. It's the Urban Legend Hotline. And you can reach the Urban Legend Hotline by dialing 512-222-3375. And once you've reached our voicemail there, you can tell us all about your day or you can sing us a song, or you can tell us a scary story, or an urban legend, or a joke, or read us a chain letter, whatever you're feeling like. You're just asking for it with the singing thing. <laughs> and I'm singing! So Sam, back to the story at hand. I've got a whale of a tale to tell you. You do? No, you do. <laughs> well, I don't, because Moby Dickhead does. That is the worst best name. I love it. <laughs> Moby Dickhead is a Twitter handle, and he has, over the course of the last few months, been crafting an urban legend for us all. One we can read in real time as it's happening. Is it an urban legend, or is it just, you know, his Twitter account where he talks about his day and weird stuff sometimes happens? Well, that's a great question. Let's look and see. So prior to this, it was just your normal old Twitter account where he's posting stuff he does and... You know, political stuff and funny cartoons, et cetera, et cetera. We're familiar with Twitter. We know what that animal is. He's not starting nuclear war, so maybe he's not using it to his fullest capacity, but he's, he's using it. Sure. So on August 7th of 2017, he says, So, my apartment is currently being haunted by a ghost of a dead child, and he's trying to kill me. Thread. <laughs> you know what the best part of that tweet is? What? Thread. <laughs> like, there's so much more. Before you react. He started appearing in dreams, but I think he's crossed over into the real world now. The first time I saw him, I was experiencing sleep paralysis and saw a child sitting in the green rocking chair at the foot of my bed. He had a huge misshapen head that was dented on one side. I did my best to draw it. Cue drawing. Is he a drawer by, by profession? We'll see. We'll see. Okay. For a while, he just stared at me. But then he got out of the chair and started shambling toward the bed. I couldn't move because I was paralyzed. Right before he reached my bed, I woke up screaming. I had another dream a few nights later when I was in a library and a girl came up to me and said, You've seen Dear David, haven't you? I was like, who? Dear David, you saw him. He's dead. He only appears at midnight. And you can ask him two questions. If you say... Dear David, first. Then she added, But never try to ask him a third question, or he'll kill you. I was very shaken. (laughs) Having two dreams about the same thing is pretty weird. Anyway, a couple of weeks passed without any incident. Then, David came back in another dream. Same situation. I was in bed, and he was sitting in the rocking chair near the window, staring at me. In the dream, I say, Dear David, how did you die? An accident in a store. I say, dear David, what happened in the store? A shelf was pushed on my head. I'm frozen with fear. I ask, who pushed the shelf? (gasps) David doesn't answer. I realize that I've asked the third question, which I'm not supposed to do. At this point, I wake up absolutely terrified. He asked a third question, Jacob. He broke the carefully constructed rules that the girl in the library gave him he's breaking the rules to the story already well we already knew he was a rebel because he was talking in a library oh i can't believe the ghostbusters librarian ghost didn't come up so he does 
as many people would do nowadays. Post it on Twitter. Well, that, but other <laughs> than that. He, uh, to the internet. He Googles it. To Google. So he tries to find something about like a dead kid named David, maybe someone that had some kind of accident with a shelf. I guarantee you he did it wrong because searching names is the worst way to do that. True. But can't find anything. Not surprising. I've been there. But he does have the opportunity to move. Good. But he moves upstairs. Bad. He lives in kind of a duplex. And nothing happens for a few months. He says, I think he lost track of me because I moved upstairs. Okay, sure. Everybody knows ghosts aren't that stupid. But lately, something strange is happening. There's something strange in his neighborhood? For the past four nights, my cats gather at the front door at exactly midnight and just stare at it. Almost like something is on the other side. Something weird that don't look good. So we do indeed have images of cats gathered near the door. And they seem to want to see what's out there. We have confirmation. There is evidence. Psychic animal activity. Okay, first thing. Everyone I, knows I'm a skeptic. Mm-hmm. That is the one thing that will scare the shit out of me. Yeah, I've seen it firsthand. If like your dog is just barking at the corner at nothing. Yes, I've seen your reaction when things like that happen. It starts growling. So we have our first hard proof. It's not a drawing. It's not him talking about a dream. It's actual evidence. There are people beginning to get more intrigued by the oh, ghost. Definitely, okay. definitely. Last night, I got a weird feeling and looked out the peephole. And I'm dead certain I saw movement on the other side. When I opened the door and turned on the hall light, nothing was there. But my cats seemed unnerved. And that's where I am right now. Dear David found me, I think. And I don't know what to do. I'll keep you updated. Is he British? No. He says dead certain. Good choice of turn of phrase. Mm -hmm. So the cats are on to David and David is on to him. The plot thickens. Apparently. So all of those tweets, it was all a thread of tweets, posted in nine minutes. And for any of us who actually think about what we say before we say it on social media, hi, other you. One you. Yeah. yeah. Other one. <laughs> other you. We know that that means that most likely it was typed out and then pasted in, which is fine. I which do that. fine. I do that. I don't like to tweet on the fly. So two days later, August 9th, update. For the sixth night in a row, my cats have walked over to the door promptly at midnight and stared at it. Ah, yes. And we've been informed about midnight. Think way back. Do you remember what happens at midnight? Dear David comes. He only comes at midnight. And for further proof, we see a rare relic. Yes. An analog clock. Where did he find such a thing? He shows it in the photo to confirm that the photo is taken at midnight. So even a broken clock is right twice a day. Hmm. Hmm. A few minutes later. Okay. So I took a photo through the peephole because I'm too scared to open the door. I feel like I saw something. I couldn't tell. So I mustered the courage to open the door. Nothing was out there. But I took another photo. Look at this. Is it just me or is there something in the first photo? Right where the banister meets the shelves. Hiding on the stairs. I deadbolted the lock and got in bed because I don't know what else to do. I can still hear my cats meowing at the door. Nevermore. <laughs> Never ne mew. The next day, the cats continue to meow and wait at the door. The next day. I used a sound app to record my apartment last night. It makes individual recordings each time it hears something. There were 30 
three recordings. Most of them are pretty vague. A couple of them are passing cars and the like, but there are three that I'm interested in. The first is a snapping sound, and what seems like a single step. It's odd, because I didn't get out of bed all night. And so, of course, he includes the audio. Yeah, there's lots of proof here. This one is weird, because out of 33 recordings, this is the only one that has this strange electric sound throughout. And then another. This directly follows the electric static. Another snap. And then I groan in my sleep. Maybe you do. These happen between 2 and 3 a.m. I have no explanation for them. I'll keep recording and share if I find anything curious. I thought Dear David only came at midnight. Ah, but 3 a.m. Okay, well that's the other time. The witching hour. (laughs) And the photos in the beginning, like his first photo through the peephole is very magic eye. You've got to really want to see the sailboat. (laughs) It's hard to say for sure. The next day, he's posting a selfie saying he's going out of town for the weekend. Kind of taking a break from all of this. Good. I'm glad. And so here's some things that people said to him. They needed to know about the cats. (laughs) Of course. And then someone else says the cats are good. They didn't ask David a single question, which we can't be sure of. Uh, Next person. I'm worried about the cats. Next person. I'm just ready for when he comes home and some crazy shit went down in the apartment. Next person. Honestly, same. I'm so invested in the story. So a few days later, he posts. So, a weird thing just happened. Take it with a grain of salt. So he decides that he is going to buy a Polaroid camera for fun Mm -hmm. and just see what happens. Polaroids are stupid and fun and inherently sort of creepy. I didn't expect to find anything, and for the most part, I didn't. Then I went to the hallway and snapped a photo. The Polaroid developed completely black. So he opens an undeveloped pack to make sure that they aren't black from the start. Good thought. Science. They're white. He also takes one with his thumb covering the lens. Also a good thought, but it doesn't come out the same way. No, it looks very different. It's just kind of like this shade of black. Right. The other one is like a consistent value over the whole photo. The one that he's taken of the hallway and then the one that he snaps with his thumb over the lens is varied. Shades of gray. Maybe 50 of them. Okay. One last thing, because I wanted to double check. Here's a couple of videos of me taking photos. And so he takes some normal photos of the apartment and then takes one in the hallway. And he lets us watch as they develop. And does one develop completely black? Well. Okay. Then he posts a photo. Of what? Of the, of the black Polaroid. A totally black Polaroid. Okay. Honestly, I don't know why I'm still fucking around with this camera. There might be a logical explanation. Someone told me to take photos from farther away, so I tried that. Once with my iPhone, once with the Polaroid. And then he posts one. It says, left is with my phone, right is with the Polaroid. The hall light was on both times. Why is it pitch black each time with the Polaroid? But we don't see the totally black developing process. No. Okay. So the next day he smudges the place. So gets some sage, gets his, his inner witch on, and goes and cleanses his home. Now, previously, when he first started the thread... People had suggested that he cleanse the place. And he's like, ah, I would, but I'm just worried. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm afraid I'm just going to kick up more activity. But now he's desperate. So the next morning he says, Sage did not work. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't dreamed about David in a few months, but he appeared again last night. In the dream, my bedroom was filled with a hazy smoke. But I could see David sitting in the chair across the room. He was smaller this time, almost shrunken. 
He didn't do or say anything except look at me. Anyway, it feels like a bad omen. Well, that's by definition ominous. Two days later, he mentions that the cats are still at the door. At midnight. And he's still hearing the sounds at night. At 3 a.m. Of course. This morning, I woke up to the whole house shaking. It felt like a small earthquake. It's just a whole bunch of small things happening at once. I feel so uneasy, like right before a thunderstorm comes. Everyone's telling me to move, but I don't have any guarantee that this won't follow me. Worth a try? Well, the next day, there's a thunderstorm warning and photos of ominous clouds. Literally clouds gathering. Yes. Okay. Now, a few days later, August 21st. All this ghost stuff has been spooky, but this past weekend was the first time I actually felt unsafe in my home thread so like i can imagine so many great stories from history like i'm going to miss mina very much but i've decided to take the job with the count thread (laughs) or like i've been given some string and told to to use it to find my way around the labyrinth but i'm beginning to doubt this plan thread (laughs) on friday night there was supposed to be a huge storm and the end it passed but that night was bizarre anyway I had a dream that night where David was dragging me by the arm through an old abandoned warehouse. It was a creepy dream, but I didn't think much of it when I woke up. I took a shower, and then I noticed something. I'd woken up with a huge bruise on my arm. Do we get a picture? Of course. Oh, good. It's not that impressive of a bruise, but there's something there. It's a bruise. Now look, maybe I injured myself the day before and my arm was hurting during the night, which manifested as a dream. That's what Freud would say. And Scrooge, he would say, you're just an undigested bit of potato. That's true. There could be a totally logical explanation for it, so I brushed it off. I went to get coffee, which I do every weekend. When I walk to the coffee place, I always pass a food cart repair depot. It's always incredibly busy, especially on weekends. I've lived in the neighborhood for over four years, and the place has always been jam-packed with carts getting serviced. But today... It was completely abandoned. The whole warehouse was totally gutted and empty. Do we get a photo? Of course. Good. So, yeah, he's like taking a photo of the inside of a abandoned looking warehouse that checks. And there's like some, some insulation. Although it looks like it's been abandoned for a while, which may just add to the creep factor, I guess. If it's just been a week. And there's just some other junk sitting around inside. Yeah, he says, well, almost empty. I went inside to look around because I was astonished that this place was suddenly empty after all these years. Basically, the only thing in the entire warehouse was a single green chair. Do we get a photo? Of course. If you recall, David first appeared in my green rocking chair. It could be nothing, but it's weird that it was the only thing left behind. On my way back from coffee, the warehouse had been shuttered. It's remained shuttered since. The chair, my bruise, dreaming about an empty warehouse, and then passing by one, it gave me the creeps. Understandably. So this is a major event. This is a a plot point we've hit here. He's had the dream. He's become precognizant. (laughs) Are David showing him what's going to happen? Or warning him? I feel like this is the guy where you'd be going, don't go in the basement if you were in a horror movie. (laughs) August 25th. There have been a few small developments in my apartment, but I'm not really sure what to make of them. I just know I'm scared. If you recall, my cats usually gather at the door at midnight, but lately it's been getting earlier and earlier every night. Shortly after the usual cat stuff, around 10.30 or so, I start getting phone calls from an unmarked number. Do we get a photo? Of course. He thought it might be an auto telemarketer, so he decides to answer it. So what's he here? 
What I heard on the other end was a peculiar electric static sound. You like the one he hears in his apartment at 3 a.m. on the sleep recordings. Yes. Ooh. I kept listening. I heard what I thought was breathing, but it was so faint I can't be sure. My heart was racing, so it was hard to hear. Then just as I was about to hang up, I heard a very small voice whisper. Hello. Something about the way they said hello freaked me out. It wasn't a question or a greeting, just... Hello. A flat statement, so quiet I could barely hear it. I panicked and hung up. I didn't know what else to do. I closed all the curtains in my apartment and turned on every single light. If I look at each individual incident on its own, there are perfectly logical explanations for everything. But after three weeks of weird shit happening, I don't know how to make sense of it all. The only thing I feel like I can do right now is write everything down. So that's what I'm doing. And that's what I'll keep doing. Ah, we have the why I'm recording moment. This is so important for all of us. We can't really accept that somebody would just do this. And so we need to be told, right? We need to be told, this is how I'm coping. This is whatever. And then we are willing to forgive almost any sin. Oh, right. And it becomes more believable this day and age. Mm Mm-hmm. Right, and I like that he tries to remain skeptical. Yes. And I like that he's saying, like, yeah, you can dismiss any of these little things, any of them, but it's the fact that it's all of them. So a few days later, also, I'm going on vacation to Japan in three weeks. I keep thinking if I can make it to my trip, this will all end, as dumb as that sounds. So he decides to buy a nanny cam that he can monitor while he's on the trip. Oh, lucky us. (laughs) So he decides to just kind of set it up to test it out. So while he's away, he gets a few pings. It's just the cats playing. He can pull it up on his phone and check it. I've never loved a cat this much. (laughs) Then, around 11, it alerted me again that it detected motion. But when I checked the feet of my apartment, I didn't see anything. Wouldn't it go off all the time if you had more than one animal in your apartment? I don't know. So he watches it a few more times. And he posts the video. And so this video shows the green rocking chair. The one David first appeared in. Yes, rocking all on its own. Just slightly. Mm, ominous. So he tries to ignore it, and then he gets another ping. And then in this one, something falls off the wall, and you really can't tell what it is. But he does provide a photo later of a turtle shell, which is also green. Since I've been back home, I've been too nervous to turn the camera back on, and today has been pretty quiet. That said, I feel really uneasy. I put the chair in the hall. I hope nothing else happens tonight. Like the hall? Like outside? Or like... Yeah, it's like a walk-up. Okay. September 5th. So it's about a week later. It's happening again. I've been leaving the nanny cam on 24-7. It records every time there's movement or sound, as you know. I was going over the feed from the weekend and noticed some weird stuff. During the night on Saturday, while I slept, it recorded the cats in the living room. And it seems pretty unremarkable at first. But then, after a few moments, Maxwell freaks out and jumps over something invisible. Who's Maxwell? The cat. Oh, I thought we had a new ghost. Uh, okay, so the cat jumps over something invisible. Uh, yeah. And there's a video of it. Yeah. It is odd. Comment interlude. I would seriously look at getting an exorcism man. Other than the cat jumping, did anyone notice the green cup on the table moving? This one? Ooh, okay, I see it now. Cat was like, WTF? 
Yes, just staring at something. I hate when people take the fun out of this. Let's have fun with it and stop trying to debunk it. OMG, this is such a fun story. I love catching up with it. Thanks for the help. When did people start noticing the green connection? September 5th? I think it was after the turtle shell. His place is very green. The rocking chair, the glass, the shelf, it all started connecting. Anyway, the next night, the camera recorded a a couple more strange videos. Specifically, it recorded Maxwell doing this on and off for hours. He'd sit up on his hind legs and peer around the room as if looking for something or looking at something. I do have to say I admire his use of proper punctuation. It's nice. I'm serious. I just can't shake the feeling that something has made its way into the apartment. Things feel off this week. I can't explain it. So about a week later, September 16th, I've been having so many nightmares lately. They're way more intense than my usual dreams. Thread. Wait, I have more. Dear Catholic Church, I have some complaints. Thread. (laughs) The Stamp Act is bullshit. Thread. (laughs) This afternoon, I took a nap and had a dream. I haven't been able to shake. In the dream, I was laying in bed and rolled over to face the other direction. On the pillow next to me was a severed head with a bloody spine attached snaking down the bed. The head was staring right at me, somehow still alive. It had this huge smile plastered on its face. Horrified, I screamed, what happened to you? That is not what I'd scream. I'd scream, get out of my bed. (laughs) But the head smiled even bigger. It feels great. Other dreams have been just as strange. Things like dark figures staring in my windows, even though I live on the second floor. Stuff that makes no sense in relation to what I've been experiencing in real life. So he decides to head down to the bodega to get a snack. And he passes by that abandoned, shuttered warehouse. Mm -hmm. He passes by it every day. It's right next to his house. When I passed the warehouse a second time, I heard a dull thunk from the other side of the shutters. At which time I ran the fuck away. No, no, this guy goes into the basement. He freezes for a second. (laughs) He goes into the basement, Jacob. I probably should have just continued on, but curiosity got the better of me. There was a grated window next to the doors, about a foot above my head, too high to see into. So I thought to myself, okay, I'm going to hold my phone up to the window and take one photo and then run for my life. There you go. He didn't go into the basement. He just took a picture of the basement, which, in all honesty, I would do. Yeah, that's probably where I'd be. I almost thought I saw movement when the flash went off, but I couldn't be certain. The light bounced off the grates and was pretty blinding. I couldn't even look at the photo. I just ran all the way home. I was too jumpy to look at it for a while. Now, once he finally does, there was a bunch of old insulation and what looked like a filing cabinet and a ripped up leather desk chair. Then I noticed something else. In the upper right corner, something that looked like a face. Maybe I'm too deep into this and my brain wants to see David when he's not there. Comment interlude. OMG. I hate it. For the love of God, go get some help. This shit gives me anxiety. A few days later, the past few days have been fairly quiet. I haven't been spending much time at home. I leave for Japan in a couple of hours. I've been trying to avoid anything weird before my trip. I still feel like this all might stop if I just leave for a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. So he leaves for his trip to Japan, and people get very concerned. <laughs> Why hasn't he posted? I'm worried about him. Did you not see the thread? <laughs> thread, dude. Read the thread. So he posts on October 2nd. It's my last full day in Japan. Thread. The past couple of weeks have been pretty peaceful. I have people taking care of the cats, and they say they've been doing fine. 
This morning, I went for a long walk around Sapporo. I came across this statue in a park. I couldn't find out any real information about it online, but it was weird and pretty. I was taking pictures of it from different angles since it's cylindrical. I moved around to one side and almost dropped my phone at what I saw. It felt too similar to be a coincidence. I felt dizzy staring at it. This kid with a dented head. So the photo is a close-up of a much larger statue. It's a like a monotone, either bronze or metal of some type statue. And there are different figures all over it. It's not the only figure, but this particular one is like the face of a small child being cradled by a mother. And the head does look slightly dented, but a lot of the figures on the statue have sort of abstract yeah. or distorted yeah. features. But it does look like the drawing he made. I don't know. Maybe I'm overreacting. Maybe this is nothing. It doesn't feel like nothing. October 14th. Weird things have been happening with electricity in my apartment this week. First, two bombs have burned out in the hallway in less than a week. But the strangest thing has to do with the backlight on my TV. The TV has to be on in order for the backlight to be on. But last night, the backlight was flickering on and off by itself. I noticed it just sometime before dawn when I woke up. And I went into the kitchen to get some water. I went back into the living room and stood there watching the backlight go on and off, on and off. It was bizarre. So he can't sleep, so he goes to get some food at the diner at 4 a.m. We've been there. And he comes home to get ready for work. As I passed the front door, I thought I heard a faint scratching sound from the other side. It was so soft, I wasn't sure it had really happened. I went over the door, but I was too scared to look through the peephole. I couldn't bring myself to actually put my face that close to the sound, so I opted to take a photo through the peephole instead. At first, the pictures didn't seem like anything, just blurry nothing. But as I analyzed it and started noticing things, part of a face, an ear, and an eye staring right back at me. I think maybe it's time to get someone else involved. It's obvious this isn't going to stop until I do something. Or it's just not going to stop and you need to move. (laughs) So he doesn't post for a few weeks. But he does post a photo that he took through the people. Oh, right. Yes. Yes. And you can see a fate. I mean, like it's an ear, but it's definitely there. Like there's no question about it. It's there. You see it. No, it's there. (laughs) I don't see it. I forensically analyzed the photo. It's there. (laughs) It may be Photoshop, but it's there. They had a friend come over to cleanse the place, and he thinks things are starting to get back to normal. The cats are starting to act normal. It'll calm a lot of users. Then one morning last week, I was walking to work and passed the shuttered warehouse as usual. This time, all the metal doors were wide open, sunlight pouring in. The warehouse was still mostly empty, except for one thing. What was the one thing? There was a hearse parked near the back wall. That's okay. Hearse has got to park somewhere. That's what he says. He's like, I tried to put it out of my mind. And the next several days were uneventful. But something else happened last night. It was around 11 or so and I was watching TV on the couch. I went to the dining room to get a drink from the fridge and noticed both the cats sitting by the far window, staring up at it. Oh, so now it's moved. The windows look out into the roof of the business next door. I glanced out the window but didn't see anything. So does he take a photo? Well, he goes back into the kitchen. And he does think he sees something. Mm. I immediately ducked down. I reached up and flicked off the light switch. I peered over the window still, but couldn't see much. My phone was in my pocket, so I grabbed it and took a photo. It was blurry and dark, but I swear, someone was out there. I closed all the blinds and made sure the door was locked and then drank like five more beers until I was too drunk to be scared. We've all been there. 
But now I feel like I'm back at square one. I'm sure it was him. He's not going away. I don't know what to do. Drink more. So there is a photo and he posts two. He took like back, back to back. And in one, he says there's nothing. And in one, he says there's something. Sure. <laughs> there is something. There's there's something. No, you can see it pretty clearly, actually. Like once you lighten the photo up. Which oh, yeah. Users do and then repost. You can see a figure, a small figure on the other roof. Ooh, comment interlude. Do a begone David dance. I feel scared to send this because what if he comes after me? SMH, I've dreamed of you two before for some reason. What the fuck? <laughs> that was my reaction to that photo. So November 6th. It's been about four months since the first time I dreamed of David. Thread. Last night I dreamed about him again. It was almost exactly the same as the first time. I saw him. In the dream I saw him in a chair again. I don't have the green chair in my room anymore. This time it was a recliner I've had for years. He was staring right at me, just like the first time. Again, I felt paralyzed, could barely move, but this time, something was different. I still felt mostly immobile, but I could squirm just a little bit. I felt more alert, I could move my hands somewhat. David glared at me and I dreaded what I knew was coming. He was going to get out of the chair and come toward me, like before. I had to do something. I kept my phone next to me on the bed and I somehow managed to get a hold of it. I thought, if David's going to kill me, maybe I can at least get evidence on my phone. So he starts snapping pictures in the dark. Sure enough, he crawled down off the chair and began shuffling toward me. He moved slowly. Like it was a struggle for him. I felt terrified, but I kept taking photos. David limped closer toward me, never taking his eyes off me. Soon I was face to face with him. He started muttering something. Too quiet for me to understand. I watched his eyes roll back in his head until they were all white. Thread. I tried to run. (laughs) No. I tried to writhe away from him, but I could barely move. I stared in horror as he began crawling up onto my bed, still murmuring something. And that's when I woke up. Same as before, broad daylight. No trace of David anywhere. Tonight, I noticed something that petrified me. I went into my phone to find a picture from a couple of days ago and saw dozens of pitch black photos in my camera roll, all from last night. It's better to show you. Turn up your brightness because they're pretty dark. Usually I can come up with some excuse for what's happening, but I have no logical explanation for this. Do we get a photo? Of course. We get a photo. We get a series of photos, actually. finally get some David photos, besides the obscure photo on the rooftop. So my personal theory is that David is really enjoying the social media attention, and he just had a selfie party. This is a series of photos, and hes it's not like he's kind of visible. It's like a sequence from a movie. Like, you can see him, him moving forward. Like, stop motion, yeah. almost. But it is blurry. It's blurry. And it's very, very dark. Like, when you first open it, it's like, okay, yeah, maybe there's something there. But then if you, you know, play with it, which I do, you can... I mean, it's not... There's no question that there is something physically there. Comment interlude. OMG, just got caught up on this. It's broad daylight and I'm scared AF. Those pictures are too much, man. Please be safe. Me. I haven't looked at the Maybe Dickhead's Twitter in a while. 
I wonder if he's okay, sees this thread. Me. Nope, 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 nope. Have you ever wondered if maybe you had a brother, like a twin or something? I don't know. You should ask. There's so many theories like that on there. <sighs> so let's stop here. There is more to the story. You can go to at Moby Dickheads, Twitter, and read some more because the story has continued. Like, when was the last upload? Like, today, huh? I don't know. At time of recording? <laughs> I don't know in relation to when this goes up. But very recently. Yeah. So, I think this is a fantastic story. Oh my gosh. I I really do think this is incredibly innovative storytelling. I appreciate it, and I really enjoy it, and I'm not trying to put you off of it. I'm saying, so before we do that, it's just a story part. <laughs> If you don't want us to ruin the fun, just like skip ahead 10 minutes. And know that we approve of that posture, that position for it's you. It's fine. Yeah, you know, like that's perfectly okay. But we do a little research. So there are a few things to consider when you're trying to look into a true story like this. That's so, like when I was doing the conjure chest or whatever. And the first thing you have to do is assess the reliability of your narrator and their motivation for telling the story. So I need to know a little bit more about Moby Dickhead. Tell me more well moby dickhead's real name is adam ellis and he is a writer artist and has a web comic book of adam a cartoonist huh okay so he tells stories for a living he does and this is a fantastic story he has knocked this one out the park like really nothing but respect for this guy i think he's doing a great job telling the story and some of the great things he does is he like provides evidence Mm -hmm. he's telling it in a like concise manner he's not trying to overuse the form so he's not like putting emojis and things in his storytelling it's it's written in prose even though it's on twitter which makes it very readable you can go back to it you don't have to have been there yeah and he has like a storyfy pinned to the top of his account which is just where you can read just the Dear David post, all in order. Thank you for that. But he doesn't actually have any other kinds of tweets after he starts on his Dear David-ness. To where before... It was a, a well-loved Twitter. You know, like it, w- it was lived in. Yeah, and I mean, he had the webcomic, so he had lots of followers. But let's talk about some of his evidence. Okay. You know what I want to talk about? What? The freaking analog clock, which is also green, by the way. I don't know if you know this, but you can change what a clock says. I know we're also used to phones that we don't remember things like this. (laughs) But you can even put it on 12. Really? Wait, not push the little SETI pin back in, and just grab it anytime the cats go to the door and take a picture. No way. But you mentioned the green thing. That is a seed that was planted long ago. And he even talks about like how the light looks like a green yellow haze in photos and stuff. Like he just he does use the word green a lot in the storytelling. And he lets the audience figure it out. Which is why he gets mad props. That is a big gold star. For Adam Ellis, yes. Okay. So that's our first piece of evidence. What's the next thing we need to talk about? Well, he has lots of photos. He mentioned one. Oh, so the warehouse photo and the hallway photo, the one where he's actually got the like the banister, not through the peephole, but the one where he's actually got the camera kind of pointed out the door. I don't know if those have been di- digitally manipulated at all, because I really don't see much of anything there. I think that it's just allowing matrixing. Pareidolia. 
Right. To take its natural course. The suggestion is there. I think there's a lot of pareidolia in the photos, Mm -hmm. but not all of them. No, no, no. So I'm a crazy person. We've established this. Mm -hmm. Uh, In our time together, I feel like you've caught on to the fact that I'm a crazy person. And I did take all of the photos and go analyze them basically to death, starting with the Polaroids. So did like a depth analysis. And I did a pixel analysis. And because it's a picture of a picture, that's like useless. Right. But then I was like, okay, wasting my time. Luminance. That was interesting. Because you see, it's too precise to be organic. And you can say that's part of the paranormal phenomena. So which photo are you talking about specifically? Okay, the one where you can see the black outside the door. Right. So he says the light on the hallway is on. If he takes a Polaroid, it's completely black. Right. First of all, we weren't there. We didn't get to see it develop. We don't know if he just went and unscrewed a light bulb. We know that he's responsible for replacing those light bulbs because he's complaining about the frequency with which they go out. That's very true. Good point. But when I pulled it up and looked at this, it looked real fishy. And then I started tinkering with it more and more. And you can see almost an impression around the inside of the door facing. Correct. So it looks like something was... Against a straight edge, and pressure was applied. Right. So you don't think it was manipulated in Photoshop? I th- yeah, I do, actually, but I don't think that's where it was done. The blacking out of the hallway. Right. I, th- I think that blacked out, quite literally. I think it may have been done using either artist ink, like an India ink, which is something a cartoonist might actually have. I either thought was electric tape, or just a Sharpie. Yeah, I'm on the Sharpie boat, because there's a sheen to it. It's so hard to tell because of the glossy finish of the Polaroid, but when I pulled up other images of Polaroids that had writing in Sharpie on them and ran them through the program I was using, it had a very similar effect. So you said you do think they've been through Photoshop, though. Well, I know they have, one, but and I'll tell you that in a second, but I do think that the bottom edge of the black was softened a little using like a blur tool. But when you go in and access the image data, there's a string. It's not the metadata. That's all blacked out. Right. There's a privacy filter on it. Right. And it has to be added. You have to put like a, oh God, what's it called? Like a no snoop or a no something filter on it. And you actually have to actively do it. And that's been used. But when you pull up the data strand, it tells you that it went through Photoshop 8. Okay. So we know these are manipulated photos at the least. Right. But he may just run everything through there. But what about these crazy photos of dear David coming towards him or out on the roof outside of his apartment? So I feel like he may be doing something almost practically. Like I feel like the one on the roof may actually use some kind of figure, like something there. So some kind of doll was placed there and a photo was taken. I think that's possible. It's not misty. It's not like an orb it's not like glowing there's nothing that indicates that it's not just there but it could have also been done quite easily in photoshop the key is to take crappy pictures of both things of whatever you want like you could have taken a picture of a picture right because they're so low quality right and and the light's so bad so even if he took a picture with his phone in dull light of some like a doll or even like a picture of a kid or whatever. As long as you're not pulling high def images off of the internet, it's going to have the same look. And that's the key to it. And so I think that what may make it so successful is that he is taking like 
like I said, almost like a picture of a picture and combining those images, all the data is turned off. And one of the biggest giveaways to me that something is going on with the photos is that the thumbnail size is inconsistent, meaning that they've been cropped or manipulated in some way. Mm, That's interesting. So in the ones where David's actually moving toward him, those are the ones I'm most impressed with. Because of the substantial nature of that figure, it's really easy to assume at first it's a doll, right? Like That's what I thought. But it can't be because it's moving toward him. And the staging of that would be very difficult. And so my gut instinct about how that was accomplished, given what the kid's wearing, et cetera, et cetera, is that these are photos of early 90s, late 90s, Kodak photos. Maybe of him as a kid, somebody where you have a series. Like you'd have to have a series of photos. Yeah. And they are manipulated first and dropped in in between the layers. Yeah, on and, you, and you kind of did this and were able to create Yeah, and it. I was working with high-def images, and so it didn't have the exact same effect. Like the ones I was using, I used a picture of my kid. To do this on a bright, sunny day outside from a high-res camera, it didn't come out exactly the same way. But I think that if you took that image, whatever kid image you're going to use, you'd have to layer one on top and one below and do the distortion only on one layer and then just bring the transparency down, but drop that in between two, like a copy of the background layer, two kid images, and then another layer of the background layer on top and just kind of mishmash the opacity and use like a dodge effect on the top layer of the kid image. You get really close. So okay. I've done it. I've kind of, <laughs> and then you just darken the whole thing down to nothing right. and make it a smaller size. So that's the trick. You make it a smaller size, you save it as a small size JPEG, and, and then you blow it, it back up to oh, the okay. phone size. Okay, so that reduces the quality of the right. photo. Interesting. But that's as close as I could get. Whatever he's doing, he's doing it really well, and in a way that is not like how you'd expect people to fake photos. Yeah. It's not just a kid on night vision or whatever. It's, it's very well done. One of the leads that led to nothing mm-hmm. that we thought would be maybe something was like, did he really go to Japan? Mm-hmm. And we were like, can we find this photo somewhere? And I think it is a photo he took, without a doubt. We were able to find the monument. Um, it's in Sapporo. Which is where he said it was. And it's called Song of the Forest. And it's by Takio Yamauchi, who does like after sculptures and has lots of paintings. Very Rothko-esque paintings. And this group of sculptures is included in was created based on the hymn of life and depicts children playing on instruments while frolicking with different animals. Spooky. It's a beautiful monument, but I will put out there for all. Maybe he went to Japan three years ago. Possible. I want to see the ticket stub. He would have posted pictures on the plane. <laughs> but that's another thing is that this Twitter account has become purely dear David because he doesn't post a bunch of pictures about his trip to Japan, which mm. anyone would. Right. I mean, another fun thing about this is that he uses a lot of narrative devices that are very kind of tropes in horror storytelling. Well, they're tropes because they're effective. Of course. So some of those include foreshadowing, which we've mentioned. He you know, talks about the storm and then there's this thunderstorm warning and then we have the electric buzz recurring. And he's definitely smart in the way that he hones in on what is repeatable. But one of the great things about it is he is not overwhelming. Like, he's not directing you so much. He's not telling, he's showing. And he allows people to draw their own conclusions, which is one of the most 
powerful elements of the storytelling. Yeah, neat. Like hidden clues, mm-hmm. like the green stuff. And then he even sets up rules, like in the very first thread that he posts, there are rules set up. Like you have to ask him, dear David, and only two questions. And he breaks the rules. That's the beginning of so many horror movies. Gremlins. Right. When can you feed the gremlins? And I think it's also really effective because he says, like, I tried to research this and I didn't find anything. It's always like discouraging people. He's saying, like, that's not the mystery. Yeah, don't go look for that. He is very consciously reorienting our focus to the interaction. And that's a really effective practice in horror. Mm-hmm. It's like we don't need to know all these details because this is happening now. This is where the plot is. And so I think that was a really wise choice. There is one case where he like uses a dummy account <laughs> for one of the earlier photos um, to be like, oh, look, if you just like bring the brightness up here. But then after that, I think the users take over and he doesn't have to do that anymore. So we feel between the two of us and the hours of research we've done on this, that it is most likely just a really well done story. And I hope that that does not diminish anyone's enjoyment of it or make you appreciate what it takes to make this work. No, because what's so great is he uses the medium to full effect. Oh, by the way, did I mention... He writes for BuzzFeed. Oh, what? You mean the people who figured out the internet? (laughs) Yes. So the day it's posted on Twitter, he writes an article for BuzzFeed. My apartment is being haunted by the ghost of a dead child, and I'm not sure what to do. Sounds familiar. Thread. (laughs) Subline, I see dead people. And so it's the classic BuzzFeed article where it's just copies of tweets in it, Mm. pretty much. And of course includes a quiz. What should I do? Options. Sage your apartment ASAP and salt the doorway. Does he salt the doorway? I think he does. He does. He yeah. does. Hire a medium and do a seance. Contact David with a Ouija board. Which would you do? I'd talk to David. <laughs> well, 67%, 112,000 people. Shut the front door. <laughs> voted for Sage. 25%, 41,000 people said hire a medium. And 8%, 13,500 people said contact David with a Ouija board. Because they've never seen a horror movie. Or they wanted shit to happen. But I do think this is just a fantastic story that's obviously been fabricated, but done in a great way because of the way it's told. Right. It's very sincere, and it's not asking people for anything. You know, like, it's not a gimmick. Well, it is a gimmick. That's, it's misused now. A gimmick is an unusual device or trick. Almost. It's definitely that. So it is a gimmick, but it's not It's not extortion. Right, right. Besides just increasing his kind of name and popularity, he's not making any money off of this or anything like that, unless he like eventually publishes a book or sells the movie rights or something, which I have not seen that he's done. And we've looked. Yes. In an early article, he said, people have approached me, and I don't think it's the time to do that right now. Like he said, I want to see how it ends. Yeah. He's got a story to tell. And and one thing I think we talked about is he's definitely, I think, started with a story structure and then has been fluid with it. And, like, if things happen, he includes it in there. Like, he probably really had a bruise on his arm. He's like, ooh, I got it. And, like, he probably just saw that statue in Japan and was like, oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And one thing that makes this so interesting is the way that it moves storytelling into social media. And in that way, it allows social media itself to kind of act as a framing device. Definitely. And there is a long history in literature of 
very effective use of framing devices, but they're always artificial. In this situation, we're looking at something where the framing device exists and the story is being plugged into it. And that's why it's so original. Exactly. Or is it? So this is a classic example of epistolary framing. Right. Epistolary storytelling is usually done through like journal entries or letters, and it can be interspersed with fictional media. It can be newspaper articles or more recent years like blog posts, even video transcripts in place of a more traditional media. This is used in every type of storytelling. One of the best examples I've seen of this is actually is in Wicked and the Divine, which is a comic series, and they use all the medias. It's really interesting. But this is a very classic form of horror storytelling. And some of the older examples in like the literary genre include things like Dracula and Frankenstein, you know, just two of the most classics ever. And also Sherlock Holmes. And the reason that this works so well is because it allows us to take part in the mystery. Oh, yeah. We are asked to come into this world, examine the clues almost, and reconstruct the story based on the fragments we have. And it does create a more reciprocal audience-author relationship. Yeah, you are automatically pulled into the story, literally. Like So in Dracula, it starts with a preface that says... How these papers have been placed in sequence will be made manifest in the reading of them. All needless matters have been eliminated, so that history almost at variance with the possibilities of later-day belief may stand forth as simple fact. There is throughout no statement of past things wherein memory may err, for all the records chosen are exactly contemporary, given from the standpoints and within the range of knowledge of those who made them. Then it includes journals, diaries, letters, and even newspaper clippings. So ahead of its time. Just to give you an idea of how long people have been using framing devices, we see this going back as far as Thousand and One Nights and the Canterbury Tales. And those are examples of nested stories. Oh, do you want me to do the beginning of Canterbury Tales? No. I had to memorize the Middle English for high school. Would you like to? You want to do it a little? No. Okay. So in these stories, one or more characters within the frame story acts as a storyteller. And through telling the stories to other characters, we experience them as well. So we have a setup and we get the short stories as a result of interacting directly with the storyteller. A related but not exact duplicate of this is the story as object. And in this framing device... One or more of the main characters within the frame story reads a book or watches a movie, etc. And the line between reality and story blur within the narrative and for the audience. The fictional world begins to intrude upon the real world as established in the frame story. So you can see things like this in The Princess Bride. I would argue even The Ring. Yeah, you're right. Definitely. And The NeverEnding Story. Right, of course. Because if you've seen the movies, the two movies, that's I've actually read the book. That's actually the one book. Yeah. <laughs> I read that in fifth grade and got all the AR points. Bitches. He is drawn into the story by the characters in the book. Which is such a cool idea. And when you're a kid, it seems like the most inventive form of storytelling ever. Oh yeah. And when we were kids they would always like the motto for libraries and the like PSAs for going read was like go into your own universe. Mm-hmm. Escape into a book. Open your book and have an adventure. Yeah. 
saw the posters all over my elementary school library. <laughs> like we had bookmarks with it. We could earn if we got 25 AR points. Which you got if you read The NeverEnding Story. That's how many it was worth. Dr. Doolittle was the Dr. only, Doolittle. <laughs> the only was the one worth I read Dr. Doolittle and got all the points, so screw you. I read Dr. Doolittle, too. <laughs> Nerd alert. <laughs> and then you have the interrogative frame. And this is most commonly seen in film rather than in narrative literature. The story itself is told in flashback by one of its principal actors, And typically, the flashback is incited by an interrogation, whether friendly or hostile in nature. So, one might think of Forrest Gump. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that'd work. Or. Usual Suspects. The greatest movie ever, and it's ruined for me now. Thank you, Kevin Spacey. I am Kaiser Sose. You can, can you be him now? By the way. Sure. Okay. Can you take over? We're definitely not ruining the end of that. Go pause. Go watch it. Then. Erase the Kevin Spacey stuff. (laughs) From your mind. And go watch it. And then there's also the epigraphic frame, which I find very interesting. And it is a framing device that essentially is optional. And one way it commonly manifests itself is in like footnotes, which are added. And that can give you kind of a context for what's happening if you want to look deeper. You can see the fictional world more fully fleshed out and kind of learn the rules if you're into that sort of thing. You can see this in a lot of sci-fi, horror kind of books. Uh, Ursula Le Guin kind of does it in some of her books where she'll just tell like some folk stories. You kind of think J.R.R. Tolkien might do that some too, where there's just random folk stories added in that just provide more depth to this created world. But oh, there's one really good book that I think was just so interesting. It's called S. And S uses... All of these devices. All of the devices. It's very interesting. I definitely suggest you check it out. But it is like a novel, and it looks like it was checked out of a library, and it has passing conversation between two people who read it. So you read the novel, then you read the writing on the inside, and it also has inserts into the book. And the book unfolds, and you could just read the novel by itself, and also the kind of mystery story that's happening between these two readers is also unfolding at the same time. And then they had to stop letting it out at libraries because people were losing all the inserts. <laughs> I believe that. No, it's true. And I find it really funny that this book that is made to look like a library book that has been checked out a thousand times cannot be in circulation at libraries. Damn. And another one in that category is Dune, which has those fantastic footnotes. And then there's found narrative. And found narrative is another really interesting framing device from a horror perspective. Because it implies that the utmost degree of realness. Oh, right. I mean, you just found this footage. Who knows what happened to them? Right. You found this journal. And by not saying that it was deliberately constructed, you granted an air of authenticity. Now, the story opens with an explanation, justification, or an introduction for the narrative. And the frame narrator provides context for the story and may or may not comment further. But you're given access to the main narrative through this gatekeeper who sets the tone and places emphasis on the important bits before you're ever allowed into the story. And some examples of that are Don Quixote and The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and Lolita and Gulliver's Travels. I find it interesting because it's a lot of horror and a lot of satire. Yeah, and the two satirical ones 
they almost make it a point like we're not changing it. This is how crazy it is. <laughs> so one type of kind of narrative device that fits into this that has become increasingly popular is the apocalyptic log. And that was definitely popularized by H.P. Lovecraft. I've heard of him. You may have. And it's not truly a journal, but it is very much written like a confession in a way. So a lot of his stories use that. But of course, At the Mountains of Madness is his most famous. And it starts with, I am forced into speech because men of science have refused to follow my advice without knowing why. It is altogether against my will that I tell my reasons for opposing this contemplated invasion of the Antarctic with its vast fossil hunt and its wholesale boring and melting of the ancient ice caps. And I am the more reluctant because my warning may be in vain. Doubt of the real facts, as I must reveal them, is inevitable. Yet, if I suppressed what will seem extravagant and incredible, there would be nothing left. The hitherto withheld photographs, both ordinary and aerial, will count in my favor, for they are damnably vivid and graphic. Still, they will be doubted because of the great lengths to which clever fakery can be carried. The ink drawings, of course, will be jeered at as obvious impostors, notwithstanding a strangeness of technique which art experts ought to remark and puzzle over. And then he goes on to, you know, how he finds Cthulhu and stuff like that in ancient civilization. Pause. Go read that, damn it. Have you not read that? <laughs> What's wrong with you? They were busy reading Dr. Doolittle and getting their AR points. Yeah, I don't think Call of Cthulhu is in many middle school libraries. Just the best ones. But it is fun just how these stories can pull you in in different ways and help a reader Suspend disbelief. And before we move on, I want to give credit to Thoughts on Narrative Framing Devices, which is a blog post by Chris Gerwell. Just kudos. But why do you think that these are tropes or traditions or so many writers look for these and don't just begin once upon a time? Like, what is it about these framing devices that helps dissolve the boundary between reader and narrative experience? I mean, instead of getting that third-person narrator... I mean, you get just that real inside look, but it's better than a first-person narrator because this is like their writing. You just get what they choose to tell you. It's not that omniscient narrator. Mm-hmm. You know, they can be unreliable. You know, it's very classic to have a character delving into madness, like when we talked about on the Doppelganger episode, Guy mm-hmm. Maupassant, where he used that incredibly effectively. And I think that there's something about not being part of an intended audience. Like, you don't have the feeling that you're trying to be won over. There's an air of authenticity to the document. So when they work, these devices kind of mediate the story for the reader. And they offer this kind of filter or lens that heightens thematic notes and points out moments of emotional resonance. It allows the reader to experience the story while being very carefully directed but hopefully not being aware that they're being directed. And it creates a space between the audience and the central action. And in horror stories especially, it can really heighten the sense of helplessness that a reader feels because you're twice removed. And in some cases, it just adds to the air of authenticity because we always have this question like, why are you recording? But these tell us why. Right, it's like it's a journal. These are newspaper clippings. I saw an example of like a story that was told all in lab reports. And I love the idea of that because it really does give you a great reason. Even Captain's Log on Star Trek gives you a great 
reason. Why are we getting a narrator at the beginning of each episode yeah. setting everything up? Oh, he's keeping his log. I mean, that's what Lovecraft does. You know, they're scientists kind of keeping their journals in a way. So one interesting example of this kind of mixed media storytelling, if you will, or like almost found footage, is the Spoon River Anthology, which was written in 1915 by Edgar Lee Masters. And it features free verse poems, and each one of them sort of function as an epithet for a citizen of Spoon River who has died. And these are, I always imagine them like the actual writing on the tombstones. <laughs> Like, not even figuratively. In my mind, they are on the tombstones, and that's what they say. Well, the picture on the cover is, like, of a graveyard. (laughs) Yeah, so it makes me think of that. Probably why. But Carl Sandburg wrote, Once in a while, a man comes along who writes a book that has his own heartbeats in it. The people whose faces look out from the pages of the book are the people of life itself. Each trait of them, as plain or as mysterious, as in the old home valley where the writer came from. Such a writer and book are realized here. Now, the book was very popular when it first came out. It was originally published serially in a journal, but eventually it was collected, and it sold 80,000 copies in four years, and it was an international bestseller at the time. But Spoon River was a real place, if not a real town. The river that ran through the writer's hometown, through Master's hometown, was Spoon River. And the problem was, he based a lot of his characters on real people, and aired a lot of their dirty laundry in his little oh, book of poetry. I bet he got in trouble. I always figured a lot of people probably thought they were real. Well, they were. And it was banned in Lewistown schools and libraries until 1974. Oh no, once everyone died off. Yeah, they were not happy about it. But it was speculated that everyone had their own copy of the book hidden away somewhere with little notes in the margins denoting who each character was meant to be. Oh, you know they did. Well, I grew up in... A town where Steel Magnolias was set. And that's one of the favorite topics of gossip still. Like, you still hear high school kids talking about it. Like, who was Weezer? You know, because they were all based on real people. So I can vouch for that. Whenever you have a popular, supposedly fictional story set in your hometown, idle speculation will ensue about which real people have made it into that story. But a sample of one of the poems, so it's called Lucinda Matlock. I went to the dances at Chandlerville and played Snap Out at Winchester. One time, we changed partners, driving home in the moonlight in the middle of June, and then I found Davis, and we were married and lived together for 70 years, enjoying working, raising the 12 children, eight of whom we lost. Ere I had reached the age of 60, I spun, wove, and kept the house. I nursed the sick. I made the garden, and for holiday, rambled over the fields where sang the larks. And Baspoon River gathering many a shell, and many a flower and medicinal weed, shouting to the wooded hills, singing to the green valleys. At 96, I had lived enough, that is all, and passed to the sweet repose. And what is this I hear of sorrow and weariness, anger, discontent, and drooping hopes? Degenerate sons and daughters, life is too strong for you. It takes life to love life. Wow, that is really heart-wrenching. It's about his grandmother. Oh, wow. And I fell in love with these when I was in high school. And I've always felt like they really did blur the line between the real and imagined. And if nothing else, you're getting kind of an unfiltered view of how he imagines these people's inner minds to work. And knowing they're based on real characters is almost... It's like who these people are to him. And so is it fiction? You know, all good fiction like we're talking about today, that's the question. That's the question. Is it fiction? 
or is it reality? And so I think that's interesting because some of these classic literary framing devices have been co-opted into being used in reality television. And we have talked about why a writer would want to use these devices. They draw people in. They draw people in and they remove the boundaries and blur the lines. And in some cases, like in the Lovecraft you read, jump up and down, even Dracula, and say, I'm real, I'm real, I'm real. This is real, I swear. And we accept it. And we don't feel lied to. We feel entertained. No, because we know it's not real. But it just gives you one more layer to accept it. But it's the same thing you see in reality TV. You know it's not real. (laughs) But they borrow so many of these devices and use them to some effect. (laughs) And so why are they effective in reality television? So according to the sensitivity theory, people go through life seeking to experience these 16 basic goals and the joys which they're associated with. And they concentrate on whichever of the joys and the goals are most highly valued. So what are some of these joys and goals I'm apparently seeking? So each individual is going to have like a couple of standout motivators and a couple of like favorite joys. But the way that they pair up, there are 16 in all, but just for example, power is one of the goals. And that's desire to influence and the joy that you feel or experience almost on a subconscious or instinctual level is efficacy. You're able to do more of what you want to do. And then curiosity is another example. And that's just a desire for knowledge. And the joy that results from that is a feeling of wonderment. And then you have status, which is, you know, a need for prestige. And that leads to the joy of self-importance. So vengeance is another one of the goals, and that's a desire to get even, and the joy is vindication. I see that in reality TV. Mm-hmm. And then honor. Competition. No, honor oh. is a traditional moral code. It's like Boy Scouts, oh. being a Boy Scout. And oh. the the joy is loyalty. It's like you feel valued and integrated and accepted. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then romance is another one. And you know, it's a desire for sex, but also courting. Mm-hmm. And that... You know, joy is lust. The bachelorette. <laughs> yes. And then order is another one of the goals. And that's a desire to organize. And that leads to stability. Now, the basic desires imply different sets of core values. We value whatever we desire for its own sake. And the logical connection between motive and core value has been recognized forever. Forever? Well, since Aristotle. So basically. There was, there was reality TV doing that? No, no, no. <laughs> They meant just in general. Right. So how's it apply to reality TV? Well, vicarious experience is very important to our viewership of media in general. But because of the variety of programming we have and the constant accessibility of it, it's a really easy way to vicariously fulfill these goals. So we get a little hit. Right. So we have the potential to experience all 16 joys and consequence of direct or vicarious experience. Now, compared with joys that result from experience, vicariously aroused joys may be short-lived, of a lower quality or intensity, and less satisfying when experienced during recall. So is that why we're not, like, sitting in front of TV all day? We are. Oh, we are in front of screens all day. Yeah. Constant feed. Yes. Constant little hits. Yes. And none of it's memorable. 
Now, as far back as Aristotle, media theories were concerned with this vicarious experience, and they were also concerned with the cathartic purging of one's souls. Now, catharsis theories express energy models of motivation, and these models predict that vicarious experiences release psychic energy, producing reductions in relevant behaviors. So it's like the violence thing. You know, like people who watch violence are less likely to go commit violence, in theory. In theory. According to the catharsis theory. Now, under the sensitivity theory, aggressive people watch violent television programs partially because doing so arouses feelings of vindication, which are joyful, not because viewing leads to a catharsic release of tension or energy. Thus, sensitivity theory predicts vicarious arousal of joys, but not a reduction in the criteria of behavior. So in catharsis, you get it out of your system. Right. It like flushes it out. But in the sensitivity system or model, it doesn't. No, you still experience the joy. You still get that little like vicarious hit. It doesn't reduce your overall desire to experience that Mm. joy. Okay, okay. Interesting. So there was a survey conducted at, quote, the Ohio State University, which inventoried people's sensitivity profiles and then asked them if they liked reality television. To see if they correlated. Right. And they did find that there were some really strong statistically significant clusters of high motivators and people who liked reality television. So what did people that love watching Survivor or Fear Factor or, because this is done a few years ago, <laughs> trying to think, you know, shows like that, what were their some of their motivators and joys? Well, they really liked order, which I found interesting, because they are very systematic. Like, you know what's going to happen every week. On those competition shows. Very formulaic. That makes sense. But they're also highly motivated by status. And they postulate a couple of theories. They say, like, maybe seeing the people on the shows who are just ordinary people makes them feel more important. Like, if these ordinary people can be on TV, I can be on TV. Well, yeah, they think that. But this one I find even, I don't know if I believe it unless you're watching Honey Boo Boo, but it's like. That's exactly what I was thinking. Like, you feel superior. Like, by watching people who are not as smart as you. But there are a lot of shows like that. I mean, Jersey Shore. People definitely emulated Jersey Shore, though. There was, like, almost an aspirational quality to it, which was gnarly. But Look, that's the problem with everything. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I, I do think that they miss that most of the time people do view the reality model as an aspirational model and are more likely gratified by the idea that they could achieve that status that they the status afforded these people seems accessible another one that showed up as a statistically significant motivator was vengeance and yeah of course we've seen it i mean reality television invented the phrase throw someone under the bus (laughs) i didn't come here to make friends exactly it's closely associated with the enjoyment of competition this desire for vindication and they stated that further people who avoid conflict anger and competition really tend to avoid reality television (laughs) and probably the news (laughs) everyone should avoid the news goddamn that's really interesting i think that's interesting in from a theoretical standpoint you know i mean there's obviously other elements to it well and reality television means so much more than it did then yeah it's not just the formulaic shows and it's there are so many niche shows like the bake-off and the you know, whatever you're into, like face off. Which we love. We love <laughs> the monster show, our kids call it, where it's effects makeup, whatever you're into. But we always comment like on face off, which probably no one has seen. It's really good. It's on sci-fi. You should like, seriously, if you need some good background noise, 
this friendship. There is like an obvious change from most reality shows to where they're always like helping each other out. They're super nice and, and they're positive. Super nice. Like I really like his work. It's really good. <laughs> yeah, they're not catty. And there's been an overall shift in reality television from like 2007 to now, like in the last 10 years, where it is not as catty. Just on the whole, like think about The Voice compared to American Idol. Oh like, right. Oh, know? I was thinking of um the old VH1 reality shows. Oh my god, like Shot of Love with Tila Tequila, who's a Nazi and that's weird. Mm. But uh and the one with oh Brett Michaels. Oh, Brett Michaels show and Flavor of Love. All that crap. Ah, Flavor of Love was so good. <laughs> Such trash. I was definitely aspiring. Were you? Yeah. Were you don't you? remember my big clock phase? I thought you were just like trying to make a time machine. <laughs> that too. <laughs> but you mentioned like American Idol, the voice. I mean, those shows also drew the audience in. Right. And that's something we see with Dear David. Yes. The audience is able to participate. And that is that next step in the the model. It's, it becomes an interactive media, a truly interactive media, to where like the epistolary stories kind of feigned this interactivity. Like you felt like you picked up a journal from somebody or you found it on the bench or something right but now you get to vote or now you get to click or now you get to suggest or comment omg what about the cats <laughs> so i've like a business analysis of interactivity and media and why it matters and what it's doing and states interactivity as a buzzword a consumer sales motif an intellectual concept and a technologically constituted feature of new media has for some time now been considered a cliche, an overkill term, a marketing concept misapplied to products or mediums, which are not definitely interactive. In much the same way as the term digital has frequently been used to describe products, mediums, or concepts which are not necessarily reliant on stored binary code for information processing. It is nevertheless an important concept which is implicated in the ways in which we think about authorship, audience, and text, and allows some considerable reinterpretation of the role and function of audiences in previous older media forms. You know, I think of things before reality TV, like whenever Robin, like in Batman, in the comics, when comics were huge in the late 80s and 90s, they had a vote if Robin was going to live or die. And people called in like a 1-900 number and voted. Those were just sex numbers. It was 1-800. No, no, no. You had to pay for it. Oh. Yeah, no. And they had other, they had other things like that, too. Well, I think about the way we got the false interactivity with things like Blue's Clues. Where, or like, you know, those kid shows that encourage you to shout out answers and act like they hear you. You know, that predates reality television. Yeah, Blue's Clues and Dora really were the shows that pioneered, pioneered that. that genre. Yeah. yeah. But they say that interactivity in media blurs lines between authorship and audience. In developing theories around interactive media, it's important to look not only at how this contestation is new, but how the development of interactive technologies can be seen as a new field of engagement in a much older struggle around the concepts of author, text, and audience. So, like, when I was thinking about, like, the struggle between author and audience, you have to think of TV shows that killed the wrong character or took a turn that the audience didn't like and the fan backlash that things have gotten. Oh, yeah. Like when Aiden was written out of Sex and the City, people mailed in little 
chairs to the producers trying to get them to put them back on the show because he was a furniture maker. I mean, like the... Oh, back when Star Trek was canceled after the second season, people mailed in. There was such a huge letter writing campaign that a third season got approved. <laughs> Lucille Ball loved the show, so she was happy to do it. That's <laughs> well, fact. I love Lucy. That's fact. <laughs> she's the one that greenlit it. So she's who you have to thank for science fiction. Heads Modern science fiction. Yeah, it's all it's all I Love Lucy. My God, she's responsible for a lot of things, though. Like, I mean, she insisted that Desi Arnaz be her husband on the show. Yeah. And that was a mixed-race couple on television when it was still black and white, and that freaked people out. And um, they also used their her real name and used her real husband, and kind of blurred the line between... Well, don't forget they had a funny female comedian. Yeah. I mean, she was a pioneer in so many ways. Really do love Lucy. She's probably a terrible racist, as I'm saying this or something. <laughs> I feel like the last few times I've been like, I love that guy or I love her. Like something terrible has come about, come out about them the next day. But the struggle between author, text, and audience is really what we're trying to reconcile and wrap our heads around in the age of new media. And you can see it so much on digital platforms like Twitter in this Dear David storytelling. But ever since there's been an internet, there's been someone trying to exploit the line between reality and fantasy. Right. I and mean, if we're going to talk about Twitter, we have to talk about YouTube. We do. So in June of 2006, when YouTube was a brand new thing, just full of cat videos and people singing the Pokemon song. Was that a thing? Oh, yeah. It was the most popular video of the first year. So glad this technology exists. Let's give them all the technology in the world and see what they do with it. Okay, cats and Pokemon. Cool. I'm fine with it. (laughs) So in June 2006, a 16-year-old girl began a video blog. Her name was Bree, and she'd been kind of lurking on the new YouTube community for a while. She posted a few videos that were responses to some of the site's biggest stars, but none of her. And they did the job kind of got people interested and had some of these big stars kind of encouraging her on. So her first vlog is posted called Dorkiness Prevails. Hi guys, my first video blog. I've been watching for a while and I really like some of you guys on here. My name is Bree. I'm 16. She's like a self-described dork. She thought her hometown was really boring. Maybe that's why I spend so much time on my computer. She's funny. She's cute. She's approachable. She's very immature. She's often seen like talking to her stuffed animals and things like that. And it's all very classic 2006 vlog. It is a webcam from her computer in her room, which is adorned in pink and stuffed animals. And a couple of frame pictures. She also had an equally dorky MySpace page. Oh my God, MySpace. I miss Tom. She had this one friend, Daniel. Very will they, won't they relationship. Very Rachel Ross. Oh, yes. I'm familiar. And her popularity grew and grew as her videos became slightly more mysterious. She'd respond to all the comments and she'd friend you on MySpace and respond to comments there. And she had some of the most active comment sections on YouTube. And as the videos progress, she begins to kind of mention her family and that they're part of this religion. While the first video starring Brie came up on June 16th of 2006 on July 4th, two weeks later... She posted a new video. It was called My Parents Suck. It was the first time that Brie really gets upset on camera, and it's when she starts hinting at her family's mysterious religion. Now, this video got 50,000 views within two hours. 
Up until that point, previous videos would reach the 50,000, 100,000 mark within a week or so. By the end of the week, that new video had half a million views. I should cry on camera. You should. <laughs> Bree found out that Daniel definitely had a thing for her. How'd she find out? He like asked her out. And then oh. He, oh, and so he's also vlogging. Cool. And telling his feelings. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they fall out and they make up and... Will they, won't they? Yeah. There were some random lighthearted videos about like hiking and science. She was really obsessed with the physicist Richard Feynman. That's a cute little quirk. But sometimes she'd talk about this mysterious religion that she was involved in. It turns out that she'd been chosen to participate in some sort of ceremony, one which even her parents wouldn't be able to attend. Now, people would comment as these videos started getting on air, like, oh, this is a hoax. And she, those are the comments she wouldn't respond to. People noticed, like, in the background of her room, there was a picture of Aleister Crowley. But how could they see him? He was invisible. <laughs> oh, that's just Mr. Crowley being invisible. In the video, A Change in My Life, Brie talks about this ceremony that she was chosen to participate in. She had to learn a new language, go on a special diet, learn special steps, take supplements, and receive weekly injections. What was in the injections? Did she know? No. Okay. So Brie promises to have dinner with Daniel, but she can't go because she has to attend the fall equinox ceremony. Okay. Cool. We've all been there. Yeah. And so Daniel's getting upset. And he's really worried about this ceremony and this religion and these injections. Understandably. he's watching her videos, and so he knows what she's saying on them. That's so crafty. She's basically a detective. So she is assigned a helper, Lucy, who's this mysterious friend that's to help Bray prepare for the ceremony. But she's like the only friend she's really like allowed to have. Right. And so they develop this like female friendship that Bree has never really had before. She's just like kind of this homeschooled kid. So one day, Daniel decides to try to figure out what's going on. And he starts following them. And he posts it online. Daniel. Bree sees the video blog of Daniel following her and gets upset. She tells Daniel via YouTube video... <laughs> to leave her alone and stop following her. She also warns them about the power of those in her religious order. Uh-huh. Daniel follows them and stumbles upon a secret ceremony. He realizes he's being watched and makes a run for it through the dark woods. Daniel realizes later that the cult has been following him as well. He later finds out this is a fake ceremony and convinces Bree not to go through with the real one. Meanwhile, Bree is contacted by Gemma, an old friend who warns her of the power and influence of the order this prompts Bree to reunite with daniel and they run okay they go on the run they start shooting well, videos get... from the hotel room okay jacob yes this sounds like bullshit well <laughs> so this is one of the first and most classic of kind of viral fictional blurring the line stories and she posted under the screen name lonely girl 15 mm. so this all started with a guy named Miles Beckett, and he had a thought. How could you really tell what was real and what was fake on YouTube? Anyone could just buy a webcam and upload what they wanted. So how easy would it be to create an entirely fictitious YouTuber? I thought it would be really cool if there was a video blogger and you told the story just like you would a TV show. So he teams up with a friend, Mesh Flinders. Is that a name? Apparently. Okay. And they begin writing scripts. So Flinders actually grew up on a commune in Northern California. He was the Zodiac Killer. 
probably. Okay. So I didn't see the outside world till I was 14, 15. So I knew what a girl who'd been homeschooled her whole life would be like, because that's what I was like. Sound logic. That's really interesting. It is. And they said if we didn't do it, somebody else would have. <laughs> so they cast Jessica Lee Rose, who had moved to the U.S. from New Zealand. She responded to a casting call on Craigslist. Oh, honey. Oh, honey. That could have gone so wrong for you. <laughs> they definitely had to convince her this was not going to be porn. <laughs> In the ad, it's like, no nudity required. <laughs> like, they knew. They knew. Like, when interviews with them, they're like, we knew we'd have to talk a girl into it. <laughs> so everyone involved was under non-disclosure agreements. They respond to all the comments, even the comments they made themselves. Oh, they're smart. Helping her shoot up in the charts. They were actually messaging Amanda Goodfried, who maintained the page in between her day job at Creative Arts Agency. She was the wife of one of the guys involved. Okay, so when they would message Brie, yes. they were getting feedback from Amanda. Yes. Love the internet. <laughs> Professional catfishing. Oh yeah, they also figured out what timestamp YouTube would pull the free frame image from and made sure it was a good one, usually featuring the charming Brie. The original plan was to create about six months worth of episodes, create buzz, and then disappear to create an indie blockbuster. But YouTube's burst in popularity changed all of that. They realized they had a much bigger audience than if they went to like Sundance or something. Uh-huh. Eventually, Web Sleuths did figure out who Brie was. They tracked her comments via IP address to the creative arts agency and then found a cached version of Rose's old MySpace page. Because they had gone and deleted themselves from the internet, which was much easier to do back then. You get it, web sleuths. I'm always amazed what people can do. After the reveal, Lonely Girl 15 ran for just over two years. And there were tons of spinoffs and hundreds and hundreds of episodes. And it goes crazy (laughs) after the first season. So even after it was revealed that this was not real, people were still interested in watching it. Yeah, it just... Made people more interesting, got the name more out. Right, because they did like nightline interviews and all oh, that. Yeah. Like they were on all the shows. They even were the first people to make money on a, with a YouTube series because they did product placement. Ah, genius. And it had Neutrogena pay for a whole season. So that would be the, pretty easy product placement now that I think about it. Yeah, and there's like they use gum for one of them, like they have a bunch. So in the 2006 initial like reveal article that was published in the LA Times, they said, As to horror film rumors, calls made to several studios found no such plans, but plenty of fascination for the way in which a Hollywood-ready cultural phenomenon had been built from a grassroots web platform. Lonely Girl 15, many say, is the next generation Blair Witch Project, using interactive forms of storytelling that, like the 1999 hit, tries to trick an audience into thinking it's true. Indeed, if a commercial project does result, Lonely Girl 15 may prove to be a model of how to harness a groundswell created on seemingly populist, user-driven websites such as YouTube and MySpace. God, I wish that's what we'd done with the internet populism. (laughs) It's some of the things we did. But they're right. It really does harness this idea of like an authentic narrative. In a way that nothing had capitalized on since the Blair Witch Project was released. So the Blair Witch Project was released in 1999. And according to Jamie Graham, who's the editor-at-large for the UK's Total Film magazine, it seems crazy now, but there was some confusion over whether Blair Witch was a real documentary 
or not when it came out. So it is a documentary format film, and it showcases these three American students who are trying to make a documentary about a local urban legend. Right. Kind of based on the Bell Witch. Basically. But it's in Maryland, and this witch is supposedly from the 18th century. But they get a bit turned around as they trek through the woods and find themselves lost and confronting this entity that they set out to find. And we're never told exactly what happens to the filmmakers, but we know they vanished. And this footage is supposedly the only thing that was recovered from the search for them. What shocked viewers at Sundance Film Festival, where the film premiered in January of 99, was how it seemed to kind of invert some classic horror tropes. For example, the famous tagline from Last House on the Left was, to avoid fainting, keep repeating, it's only a movie. And this is like, no, it's not. It's not only a movie. We're still searching for these kids today. So one of the keys to the success of the Blair Witch Project was the word of mouth marketing that literally tried to reinforce the idea that this was recovered video that had been put together in a film format after a paranormal encounter. Now, once word spread that actual recorded evidence of a ghostly urban legend had been recovered and was going to be played in movie theaters, people were online. This was huge. I mean, I remember how big this was. Mm -hmm. Everyone was talking about it. It was not the first found footage movie, but it was the first combination of framed narrative, shaky cam, and viral marketing. This would bring the genre to prominence in decades to come. But here's a brief history of what preceded the Blair Witch Project. I mean, one thing that comes to mind is when we've talked about Cannibal Holocaust. Right, we talked about that on our snuff film episode. Where everyone thought it was a snuff film because they told them it was. And also they had all the actors never show up and they all signed non-disclosure agreements and they had to go hide somewhere while the movie was out. Right, and people were so freaked out that they were actually compelled to appear in court and be like, not dead yet. Not dead. Mm -mm. But then there was a sci-fi evolution in the genre in 1989 with UFO abduction, which claimed to be found footage of an actual alien abduction caught on tape. And then in 1992, there was Man Bites Dog. I haven't heard of this one. It's Belgian, which probably accounts for that. But this was a mockumentary style movie, and it kind of picked up on the slasher thriller genre. But supposedly, a filmmaking crew had followed this burgeoning serial killer in order to document his crimes. What? But they ended up participating in the crimes. No, this is no. It's supposed to be satire. Interesting. And it was supposed to explore our detachment to violence when viewed through the lens of a camera. Jonathan Swift would applaud you. Right. And then there's this beauty, this absolute beauty, by Peter Jackson. Lord of the Rings Peter Jackson. Yes. In 1995, one of his early films, and it's called Forgotten Silver. Yeah, and it played on New Zealand television as a documentary. It was supposed to be found footage that Peter Jackson's elderly neighbor had found in their shed some old real cans and these are from a filmmaking pioneer that has been lost to history named colin mckenzie and he's like turn of the century film director who apparently had invented every film innovation at the time before anyone knew about it including 
color, sound, sound, which he accidentally filmed a movie all in Chinese and didn't figure out subtitles. So everyone just walked out because they weren't interested. So no one heard about it. And (laughs) with the color film, he accidentally filmed Tahitian topless women and was put into hard labor for six months for peddling smut for peddling smut the jury deliberated for 37 hours did they request multiple screenings this all-male jury requested multiple screenings (laughs) he accidentally invented the tracking shot because he figured out instead of manually turning a camera he hooked it up to his bike and he also accidentally invented the close-up because he was in love with his star and kept zooming in on her face and candid camera Yes, it's the most fun, ridiculous movie you but will ever so see. But it's so deadpan. Oh, and it's got tons of actual like film critics and like Sam Neill's in it, which I didn't know he was from New Zealand. I didn't know he had that accent. It freaked me out. And uh, Harvey Weinstein's in it. Oh my god, we've got to stop <laughs> recommending these movies. <laughs> But it's got a bunch of real like critics and directors and things like that and actors in the movie that give it that authenticity, but it is 100% deadpan. And I'll post a link to it. It's so funny. And it's funny because of the irony. Like, there's a conspiratorial tone that we get to take part in. And we have access to these discovered secrets, these revelations. Yeah, people watch this on New Zealand TV and did not know it was fake. It's so funny. <laughs> it's, it's not so mentioned f- anywhere. It's so funny. We have an innate reverence for mystery, and somehow that's played comedically here. We're allowed the joy of being in on the joke. Like, if you know it's fake, it's hilarious. It's very much like a Christopher Guest movie. You know, mm-hmm. like uh, Spinal Tap or Best in Show. And this is not horror, but it highlights the importance of the psychological elements of found footage. It is the sensation of having secret knowledge, this kind of voyeurism, being part of an unintended audience. All of these things are drawn out ironically in this art world car- comedy farce. But the same things allow us to suspend disbelief and forget the unreality of the premise in works of horror. You know, I wonder if one of the things that makes it so effective in horror is that you know there's no happy ending. You know, you know no one gets out. I mean, in regard to Blair Witch specifically, yes. I think that is one of the things. Because you get to see right up until the moment. They disappear. That they disappear and there's still a mystery. Like you're there in the room and you still can't explain it. And you get to interact with it that way too. You get to talk to your friends and say, what do you think happened? Mm Mm-hmm. So knowing that the commentary in the film Forgotten Silver is a joke, doubles our enjoyment. But on the opposite end of the spectrum, playing with the same notes, the feeling that the film was not prepared for an audience, but served as a record for those involved, and the horrors were captured incidentally, doubles our fear. In the first case, we enjoy being the ultimate insider, and in the other, the ultimate unsuspecting initiate into the secrets of the universe. So after this... There was Lil Wall. And then we get the Schumacher Cage joint. Uh, eight millimeter. It's not very good. It's snuff films. Yeah, but they do use found footage as kind of the premise of the movie, which is interesting, but it's got a more traditional production of value. And then there's the last broadcast, 
which was produced shortly before Blair Witch Project. And it was a horror film that attempted to use found footage to recreate a journey of documentary filmmakers who were murdered in the Pine Barrens. The Jersey Devil. Yes, they were searching for the Jersey Devil. Did they find his headless pirate bestie? Yes, and then they disappeared. But supposedly, the movie was made for $900, but netted $4 million. Well, that's good. But you know they watched Blair Witch blow up and were like, Why not me? Yes. Because the Blair Witch made bank. So it's estimated that the production costs were between five hundred thousand and seven hundred and fifty thousand. However, it made two hundred and fifty million. Damn. The strangeness of the marketing campaign became evident when it premiered at Sundance and the town was covered in missing person posters. Of course. Featuring the three principles from the movie. Now, it's important to pause for a moment here and consider the ramifications of Al Gore's invention of the internet. Definitely. So it played a vital role in the viral spread of information that led to the film's success. Interestingly, the word viral marketing, or the term viral marketing, was used for the first time in relationship to the marketing campaign for Blair Witch. Interesting. So people were just getting comfortable with the idea of going to the internet for information. And there was not a known need to examine the credibility of claims made on websites because they were generally made by people who had factual information. Well, we do that now. We've had everything now. We, thank God. Thank God. Thank God. But things spread around the web for the purposes of marketing the Blair Witch Project included the missing posters, mocked up news reports, 300 years worth of created mythology about this witch and the things that she had supposedly done, Interviews with the characters' loved ones and actors posing as police and investigators giving testimony about their casework and also childhood photos of the actors. And then the Sci-Fi Channel aired a documentary showcasing the lore that was used in the movie in a program called Curse of the Blair Witch. And it was released like as a special, not like a behind the scenes or anything like that. It was just like, hey, here's this crazy story. They released it like a... A documentary or like mm-hmm. just any other show they would show. Like a non-fiction. Mm-hmm. Now, the legends describing the killings, disappearances, and some of the residents of Blair, Maryland, which, which was a fictitious town based on Burkittsville, Maryland, from the 18th and 20th century. Residents blamed these occurrences on the, the ghost of Ellie Kedward, a Blair resident accused of practicing witchcraft in 1785 and sentenced to death by exposure. The Curse of the Blair Witch presents the legend as real. And it was complete with manufactured newspaper articles, newsreels, television news reports, and staged interviews. This is genius. Mm -hmm. I absolutely love this marketing campaign. It was first. It's so immersive. I mean, now we see it all the time. And we have a filter for it. At this point, we so didn't. But the actors who participated in the film never made public appearances. They were declared missing and assumed dead. And the IMDb page for the Blair Witch Project backed this claim up. I mean, they thought of everything. They really did. And later, the small town of Burkittsville, which was Blair in the movie, was descended upon by people who were determined to solve the mystery of what happened to these kids. And so not only were the marketing devices the height of committed faux authenticity, but so were the performances. So not only did the actors improvise all their dialogue and use their own names, Heather, Michael, and Josh, but they also shot the film themselves while hiking. Really? Yes, the directors, Myrick and Sanchez, would leave notes around the area 
instructing them on what to do and where to walk, but they never knew what was going to happen next. So the fatigue and the stress and the anxiety, all that's kind of real. That's amazing. I mean, they truly were blurring the lines. And it was not just the hands-off approach that the directors used, but the careful way that they plotted out the scares for the actors. So, like, they didn't know it was coming? No, they didn't. So, Mark Kermode, a film critic and horror expert, said that Blair Witch has a strange blend of acting and actuality. When the characters discover spooky stuff hanging from a tree... That's when the actors discover it, too. When they're woken up by something banging on their tent in the middle of the night, that's the directors banging on the tent. Obviously, the actors knew they were making a film, but you can see that they're genuinely befuddled. It's that element of discovery that pushes the performance over the edge and really works on the audience. I can remember intelligent people seeing it in 1999 and saying, I'm sorry, was that true or not? But for years, it really did remain the only high-profile contribution to the found footage genre. We didn't see anything like this again until like 2007, 2008, when you got things like Cloverfield. Thank you for that. There was an onslaught of contributions to the genre. But Pete Turner, who's a film lecturer and wrote a book on Blair Witch Project, said that he thinks that 9-11 sparked a renewed interest in found footage. So many people were recording and there was like this mosaic account of this world-changing event and When you go back and you look at it, it's pretty much inarguably compelling, and it does tell an incredible story. But then he notes that we got used to watching people recording themselves and talking directly to their camera when YouTube came around in 2005. And you also see it in reality TV. Absolutely. But Blair Witch Project struck the right chord at the right time, because it made sense for them to take, you know, a camera into the woods people would really do that and it also made sense for them not to have a cell phone in their pocket or a gps in their hand cell phones are in everything but the reason that blair witch was so distinct from every other found footage horror film was that it came between the 20th and 21st century kind of between the digital and analog age kermode goes on to say 18 years on it's easy to forget how unusual the film was we're inured to it all now but seeing a film shot on a video camera in a cinema in 1999 was genuinely quite odd. And it worked. That's what counts in horror films. Does it work? I know it's very fashionable to say that Blair Witch isn't as scary as everyone said it was. But I can tell you it worked. Because I remember seeing it for the first time. And I remember people being completely and totally freaked out. It was also said at the time. At a time when digital techniques can show us almost anything, the Blair Witch Project is a reminder that... What really scares us is the stuff we can't see. The noise in the dark is almost always scarier than what makes the noise in the dark. And that's according to Roger Ebert. And so after the Blair Witch, you see this huge expanse, like you said, the Cloverfield, the Dark Knight had a now famous or infamous kind of ARG alternate reality game. Why so serious related to the reveal of the Joker and Cloverfield even had a A thing like that as well. And, you know, we have the onslaught of all the paranormal activity movies, Mm -hmm. which really capitalize on, like, the ghost hunting thing. And I think uh, at the time, after Blair Witch came out, you had this show on MTV that I loved (laughs) called Fear. Mm -hmm. People would strap on Steadicams that were pointed at their face. Like the original GoPro. Yeah. And then they had shaky cams, you know, cams that they held, and they were taken to true, like, supposed haunted places. 
mm-hmm. and given like dares. Mm. And they had to go like sit in this dark room where someone was murdered or whatever. And it really did show that fear is not the ghost. It's what we're afraid of. I think that's so interesting because you can kind of see how the suspension of disbelief has become part of our culture and part of the way that we interact with media when you look at how the paranormal shows have evolved now where we are looking for the ghost. And this, we're just looking at the fear. We're looking at the faces of these people as they experience fear. And that's what's creating the response in the viewer. But now, you know, we've taken it a step farther. And you have to ask, like, is this something that could only happen now? Or have we always been susceptible to being brought a little too far into the realm of the unbelievable? So it's interesting that you said that Blair Witch kind of came out at the time where media was transitioning. Mm-hmm. It was transitioning to where we have the internet and where we are today. And they capitalized on that. And it allowed it to become more real. And it's not the first time that's happened. Nothing new under the sun. So on October 30th of 1938, Orson Welles' The Mercury Theater, who was only 23 at the time, <laughs> presented their adaptation of H.G. Wells' classic, War of the Worlds, on Columbia Broadcasting System. It starts off as just, you know, some news bulletins that are breaking into this really kind of boring music concert that they're presenting. And now back to Robbie Roulette and his orchestra. <laughs> 20 minutes into the broadcast, it sounded as if Earth was under full attack. Moving very quickly, the Martians have traveled from their home planet to Earth, destroyed units of American soldiers with their heat rays, and forced a declaration of martial law. They go on to take over New York City in a large area of the United States before catching a cold and dying. Everyone knows it's the best twist ending ever. It's a great twist ending. So WABC, which aired the program in New York issued this statement one hour after the broadcast ended. For those listeners who tuned in to Orson Welles' Mercury Theater on the air broadcast from 8 to 9 p.m. tonight and did not realize the program was merely a radio adaptation of H.G. Wells' famous novel, War of the Worlds, we are repeating the fact, which was made clear four times on the program, (laughs) that the entire content of the play was entirely fictitious. Oh, no. Four times? Four times. That's every 15 minutes. The New York police sent out the following. To all receivers, station WBAC informs us that the broadcast just concluded over the station was a dramatization of a play. No cause for alarm. So this leads me to believe that there was some alarm. So, legend, maybe, popular rumor, at least, would have you believe that when this played, it was essentially madness in the streets, people were pulling their hair out, gnashing their teeth, speaking to priests, writing up last wills and testaments, and clutching their loved ones. It's always projected as being this near catastrophe. Utter chaos. Yes. Now, believe it or not, it blurs the line. Uh, So newspapers reported on it the next day. You mean that old media? Exactly. Thousands of people across the country had taken this fictional news account to be true and fled their homes in terror, grabbing firearms, putting on gas masks, and clogging the highways in a mad rush to escape the imaginary Martians. The Herald Examiner from Chicago, Radio Fake Scares Nation, hysteria among radio listeners throughout the nation and actual panicky evacuations from sections of New York and New Jersey resulted from a too realistic radio broadcast last night describing a fictitious visitation of strange men from Mars. And the Washington Post said, Monsters of Mars 
on a meteor stampede radiotic America. <laughs> well, I do think they're editorializing as skosh. Too realistic, right in the headline. San Francisco Chronicle. U.S. terrorized by radios, men from Mars. U.S. terrorized by radios is the real headline they wanted to get out there. Exactly. Just saying. Notice that that is in all of the headlines. New York Times. Radio listeners in panic, taking war drama as fact. Many flee homes to escape gas raid from Mars. Phone call swamp police at broadcast Wells Fantasy. A wave of mass hysteria sees thousands of radio listeners between 8.15 and 9.30 o'clock last night when a broadcast of a dramatization of H.G. Wells' fantasy, The War of the Worlds, led thousands to believe that an interplanetary conflict had started with invading Martians spreading wide death and destruction in New Jersey and New York. In Newark, a single block, more than 20 families rushed out of their homes with wet handkerchiefs and towels over their faces to flee from what they believed was to be a gas raid. Some began moving household furniture. Throughout New York, families left their homes, some to flee to nearby parks. Thousands of persons called the police, newspapers, and radio stations here and in other cities of the United States and Canada seeking advice on protective measures against the raids. And one person says, I heard that broadcast and almost had a heart attack. I didn't tune in till the program was half over. But when I heard the names and titles of federal, state, and municipal officials, and when the Secretary of the Interior was introduced, I was convinced it was the McCoy. I ran out into the street with scores of others and found people running in all directions. The whole thing came over as a news broadcast, and in my mind, it was a pretty crummy thing to do. So I suppose that is the danger with it, is like, what if somebody catches 14 minutes? You know, they were announcing it every 15 minutes. What if someone listens for 14 minutes and then runs out of their house screaming? Well, that's always kind of the story is Mm -hmm. that, oh, people tuned in after it started and they didn't hear the warning at the beginning. Like we said, every 15 minutes, they were like, this is fictional. But I guess the question is, is like, is it a crummy thing to do? Did they like not announce it beforehand? Was it well, like they did? They did. And was it like this was always just a music hour, or was it like no? This was when Orson Welles Mercury Theater played every day. So the Daily News reported fake radio war stirs terror through the U.S. at large pictures of a downtrodden woman with a broken arm. Plus this like spooky picture of Orson Welles is like floor lit with a menacing shadow. Oh, you mean monster light? Yes. Okay. Now all of these casualties reported. The New York Times and New York Herald reported that at least 15 people had been treated for shock at a hospital in Newark, New Jersey. And Caroline, this woman with the cast, who had been an actress. Oh, it's her big been, break. Yeah. It's her <laughs> big break. <laughs> had been alarmed while listening to the broadcast at her home in New York rushed into a street and fell, breaking her arm and skinning her knees. But she was like the poster child. Her image was in every article. So did any Southerners write in? Did they write strongly worded letters to the editor? Not that I know of, but a lot of people did write in. So 1,700 people wrote letters to the main CBS station, and 1,450 wrote to the Mercury Theater staff. More than 600 contacted the newly formed FCC. (laughs) Claude L. Stewart of Meadville, Pennsylvania, sent a telegram to the commission stating, Mercury Theater is not only in bad taste, but dangerous. Stop. 
my wife and several other women confined to beds from shock and hysteria. I'm sure they were. (laughs) The city manager of Trent, New Jersey, asked the commission to take action, quote, to avoid a reoccurrence of a very grave and serious situation, which completely crippled communication facilities of our police department for about three hours. I mean, that's a legitimate concern, I guess, right? Now, they reported about a woman in Pittsburgh whose husband stopped her from poisoning herself. Quote, I'd rather die like this than fall victim to a Martian heat ray. That's a story. That's an amazing story. I feel like that should have... You buried the lead here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the Washington Post told of callers who, in terrified, tearful voices, asked, What's it all about? Is it safe to stay here? Have they called the Army, the Navy, and the Marines? They wanted to know if anyone were yet alive in New Jersey, if New York was being evacuated, if Washington would be in danger before morning. The Post declared for an hour, hysterical pandemonium gripped the nation's capital and the nation itself. But the thing is, a lot of these stories that were featured in the paper were all plucked from the wire service. Mm. So the wire service is just like a general write-up that goes out to smaller papers, basically, to... To fill in news on a national level. Yeah, so all the bureaus wrote up little write-ups they heard and sent them in. Mm Mm-hmm. But no one's, like, fact-checking this. Good, good, good. So without a doubt, there was some confusion and curiosity. But was there mass hysteria? There was definitely an element of second and third and fourth and fifth hand warnings to neighbors and friends. And this is most likely where most of the fear came from. The New York Star reported some apartment houses were hurriedly emptied by the frantic listeners to the program and by those who heard secondhand account, multiplying the supposed peril. Many of the panic strikes did not hear the original broadcast. Okay, I can see how that would be scary. If you come and see someone rushing out of their apartment, freaking out, and you're like, what's up? And they're like, we're being attacked! And don't say anything else, exactly. just run away. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I can see how that would be scary. And you have to remember what year this is. Oh, God, it's Nazis. Yes. Nazis. Yes. I hate those guys. In Orange, New Jersey, a man rushed into a theater lobby, exclaiming that a meteor had fallen nearby and little men were dashing around and growing into giants. I've got to tell all the people to get out in the country to get away from poison gases. They'll all be killed. The manager went to call the police, and when he returned, the intruder had gone. No. And so New Jersey specifically is so freaked out because supposedly this happened in New Jersey. Yes. The Baltimore Sun reported the day after there was almost as many versions of what was believed to have taken place as there were listeners. The stories colored and embellished as they were told and retold. This hysteria had as much to do with the power of rumor as it did with the power of radio. Oh, that sounds like good reporting. It is, shockingly. Mm -hmm. So this also explains the muddled and inaccurate reports that come from the night. Smells of poison gas. The New York City skyline on fire. Attack planes ready to drop bombs. And meteorites wiping out towns. And it's fair. Like, the rumor idea is fair because no one can just hop online and go check it out. That's a good point, and that is why the police were swamped with calls. These people weren't calling in hysteria. They were calling to verify what they'd heard. And that is a reasonable thing to do. Exactly, and that's also the newspapers were called, because the radio was this new 
thing. And newspapers were the tried, trusted, and true source. The newspapers were always hammering home that point. Don't believe it unless you read it. Mm. Mm. I miss the days. Those (laughs) were the days. And so people were calling the newspapers and they were calling the police to verify the story they heard from their neighbor who was running around like a maniac. The mental image this conjures for me is basically Bugs Bunny. Like, it's basically a cartoon. Now, that idea that people tuned in later can be kind of excluded pretty easily because whenever the equivalent of the rating system at the time telephoned 5,000 households for its national rating survey, they asked what you're listening to, and only 2% answered a radio play or the Orson Welles program or something similar. None said a news broadcast. So in other words, 98% of those surveyed were listening to something else or nothing at all. Or they understood what they were listening to. Right. And so there are other surveys saying that a larger percentage switched over to the channel later on. But as we said, it's stated every 15 minutes that this is not an authentic broadcast. So the person who's most likely to believe this, if we're being fair, is the person who is most likely to need to go tell everybody about it. Like kind of the person prone to drama and and fantastical thinking. The busybody. The busybody. Yeah, definitely. You know, the person that wants to go warn all their neighbors when they hear just five minutes of it. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, those sane people were like, let me call the cops and see if this is what's happening. And that's why I get swamped. Was this always the Ravi Roulette music hour and it was just Orson Welles this one time? Was it not like the regular day? Was it out of the ordinary? No, this was when the Orson Welles Mercury Theater program came on every week. Every week. So this is not a new phenomenon. No, the week prior they had done Around the World in 80 Days. And no one really thought they were going around the world in 80 days. The next week, they did Heart of Darkness. And no one really thought that they were hanging out with Marlon Brando. The horror. So one thing I will say is like this is a much larger scale story. There are no characters. This feels different. That's true. That is true. It is designed to sound like news alerts. But at the end of the program... Wells explained, this was an adaptation of The War of the Worlds was a holiday offering. Quote, the Mercury Theater's own radio version of dressing up in a sheet and jumping out of a bush and saying boo. Oh yeah, that's exactly what it was. (laughs) So after the program, Wells spoke to the press, or what he called a terrifying mass press interview. I am sure he felt that way. So you would posit that he was thinking like mass hysteria, mass press interview. He's just saying the same thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, got it. He regretted any misapprehension which our broadcast last night created among some listeners, but insisted it was unfathomable anyone could have mistaken the dramatization for an alien invasion. Years later, when asked about it, he said, Houses were emptying. Churches were filling up. From Nashville to Minneapolis. They were wailing in the streets and the rendering of garments. So he was his own hype man. Uh, Orson Welles? Yeah. 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 That's how you own it. You wait years later and you're like, hey, it was awesome. (laughs) But many listeners were delighted by the performance. Of the 1,700 people who wrote to the main CBS station, 1,086 were complimentary. In addition, 91% of the letters received by the Mercury Theater were positive. 
and almost half the leaders of the FCC were in support and urged the FCC not to censor the program. That seems like an important detail that was left out of the initial news reports. Well, so some of this information has come out very recently. So the Mercury Theater and all of Wells' documents were only recently discovered in the archives. Awesome. I want to go read Wells' documents. Well, so... Now. (laughs) Well, Brian Schwartz wrote a book using these documents called Broadcast Hysteria, Orson Welles' War of the Worlds and the Art of Fake News. Oh. Because he discovered it when he was a student. So topical. People also reported the curiosity it struck in people as groups gathered on street corners, hoping for a sight of the battle in the skies. But in some of the letters to Wells, frightened listeners described phoning up or going to see friends or relatives, telling them to turn on CBS or get out of the path of the invaders. Dozens more came from people who tuned in only because they were on the receiving end of those calls Hmm. or because their next door neighbor burst in to warn them of the catastrophe in New Jersey. So you did have these little small pockets of hysteria. One listener did sue CBS for $50,000 claiming the network caused her Nervous shock. Oh, good. The case was dismissed. I love this letter from J.V. Yoki of Aberdeen, South Dakota. He said, I suppose that by this time you have received many letters from numerous cranks and crackpots who quickly became jitterbugs during the program. I was one of the thousands who heard this program and did not jump out of the window, did not attempt to suicide, did not break my arm while beating a hasty retreat from my apartment, and did not anticipate a horrible death, did not hear the Martians rapping on my chamber door, did not see the monsters landing in warlike regalia in the park across the street, but sat serenely entertained, no end by the fine portrayal of a fine play. So now we know who you were in a past life. Oh no. Here's me. Okay. <laughs> In a handwritten note, 12-year-old Clifford Sickles of Rockford, Illinois, wrote into the FCC, I enjoyed the broadcast of Mr. Wells. I heard about half of it, but my mother and sister got frightened and I had to turn it off. <laughs> oh, I want to go back in time and his cheeks. That's precious. That's Remy. <laughs> One later report that I thought was so funny. The Post fell victim to a prank playing Marine who told the newspaper that during the broadcast, his fellow Marines at their barracks in Quantico, Virginia, had been reduced to weeping and praying and protesting that they didn't want to go to war in the winter. (laughs) Marine Corps officials soon issued a pointed denial and the Post backtracked, saying the source of the account was a Marine playing a joke on his buddies, but it was a joke that was not appreciated by the other enlisted men. <laughs> um, hey, the Post has come a long way in their vetting process. A little. So, like, why is this, like, turned into the early version of Celebrity Deathmatch? Like, why are all of these high-profile papers taking wells to task for this broadcast because they saw the perfect opportunity to take down the new media radio radio kill the newspaper star notice how it's always terror by radio radio Mm -hmm. play radio war radio aliens i do notice that the new york times reproached radio officials for approving the interweaving of blood-curdling fiction with news flashes offered in exactly the manner that real news would have been given And we were like, it's genius. 
The editor and publisher of the newspaper's industry trade journal said the nation as a whole continues to face the danger of incomplete, misunderstood news over a medium which has yet to prove that it is competent to perform the news job. So they were afraid that people were getting segmented information that lacked context and wouldn't be able to discern fact from fiction. Nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. But one of the big things that had just happened was that radio was becoming the source of breaking news with Mm -hmm. all of the events occurring in Europe. Well, it makes sense because newspapers come out, I mean, multiple times a day in some cases, but in smaller towns especially, once a day. And sometimes three times a week or something like that. And so you don't get a news bulletin at five o'clock when something major happens. But radio can do that. Exactly. Like, for example, right before this play had come out, there was the news alert that Hitler's land demands an annexation of part of Czechoslovakia. And you also have the radio taking ad revenue from the papers. Mm, Well, there's the actual problem. So I will go out on a limb and say, oh, Orson, this is very poor timing. Because now you have, like, Hitler's on the move. He's probably inspired by that. Yeah, probably was. But, like, I can see, like, if something happened today, if if the news media as a whole decided to, like, pull a prank... They've done it. Yeah. I mean, every April Fool stuff comes out, but people expect it now. Like, wouldn't you think North Korea was bombing us? <laughs> mm-hmm. It's just the context of the moment, and you have the tensions building in Europe, and you can see why six people got really freaked out, <laughs> but not 60,000. But the news was taking the radio to task. The Detroit Free Press said, Things are reaching such a pass that the radio simply must be cleansed of its evil sensationalism. And if there is no other way to perform the job, it must be through some sort of government action. So nothing new under the sun. Good. The Chicago Tribune even attacked the audience, saying that they were not very bright and... Perhaps it would be more tactful to say that some members of the radio audience are a trifle retarded mentally and that many a program is prepared for their consumption. This was not a hoax. It was fiction. And any normally intelligent man, even if he tuned in late, could not have failed to recognize it for what it was within a minute or two. And that's a little too glib. It's bad. It's a little too glib. You've uh, got uh, overcorrected there. So in addition to the fact that we don't suspect Martians are going to come get us, like the fears are much further removed in a galaxy far, far away. This seems to be like a like the equivalent of like a boxing match between radio and newspaper. Like this does not seem to be a, a contest of today's time. And Orson Welles isn't around anymore. And None of us really read newspapers or listen to the radio. Why are we still talking about this? I know. I read newspapers and listen to the radio. I know. I love NPR. We still talk about this because a social psychologist, remember this is the burgeoning field of psychology, Hadley Cantrell, and the Radio Research Project at Princeton University launched an immediate investigation of the panic, hoping to gain some fresh insight into the power of propaganda. Hmm. Ah, yes. If we could ever get the... The recruiting power that those Nazis have. Why, we could win a war. And while their intentions were for the best, they really had a very skewed sample. They only interviewed 135 people, 100 of whom were known to have been upset by the performance. Oh, God. Yeah, that's not, that's not sound. And he concluded that long before the broadcast had ended, people all over the U.S. were praying, crying, 
fleeing frantically to escape death from Martians. Cantrell, and rending their garments. Of course. Cantrell's own estimates were that at least 1.2 million listeners were frightened, disturbed, or excited by what they heard. So those were his criteria. Not were, were you in a mass panic, but were you excited by it? Were you frightened by it? Or were you disturbed by it? And then he extrapolated from those 135 people that 1.2 million people must have been excited by it. This is why you have to take statistics if you're a psychology major. If you're bitching really about should. that right now, like if you're looking at your degree audit and being like, why statistics? Why do I have to take statistics? Case in point. Sorry. So he published these findings in 1940, The Invasion from Mars, a study in the psychology of panic, which painted a vivid but misguided portrait of a terrorized nation, making the panic seem much more extensive and pronounced than it actually was. One thing we know that happened after this is this made Orson Welles famous. He got a multi-picture deal with RKO and went on to make some of the best movies of the time. Of the time? Well, some ever. Some ever. So W. Joseph Campbell did some great research into this, and he found that almost all newspapers swiftly dropped the story. So coverage of the broadcast faded quickly from the front pages. In most cases, after just a day or two, he argues that if there truly was a hysteria and this widespread panic and people hospitalized and injured and committing suicide, this probably would have gotten a little more press coverage. True. So people were excited. People were afraid. People were disturbed, even if they, like gathered their wits and called the police it did have an effect on people and it's still effective i mean we just listened to it it's great it's and it's fantastic. amazing but what made it so effective well it didn't sound like a play for one so if you did tune in late you would be very confused after 10 minutes like especially if you tune in, in the middle of the music i mean it used this like overlapping dialogue crowd noise microphone feedback i mean one of the things that i love is he's like I'm here with this farmer uh, talking to him and like the guy starts talking. He's like, no, closer to the mic. Yeah, that is one of the best features of it. Like these people don't know what they're doing. They're real people on the street, not actors. Yeah, I mean, they'd recently heard all this late breaking news about Adolf Hitler's rise to power in Germany. And they did have these prestigious sounding speakers. They gave everybody titles, professors, astronomers, military officials, even the Secretary of Interior. And they placed it in a real place in new jersey and they have a monument now they do but the reason that people were so concerned about this at the time was not just the propaganda but also the concern of how gullible the american public may be one listener wrote into wells saying it's little wonder that the much discussed ism have gained such a foothold if the american people are as gullible and excitable as that a smooth tongue orator could soon turn their heads no. <laughs> Others saw the panic as proof of the United States was completely unprepared for the war. Everyone knew it was coming. But what has been written, said, and acted, Mr. Hitler must be laughing his head off, if he ever laughs. To think what cowards we are, said one New Jersey woman. Well, he knows now. I imagine is filled with his own particular brand of joy. So I'm really glad that we're not continually preaching about how gullible the American public is and how the rest of the world is laughing at us anymore. That's cool. Well, this is, just like fake news you see today, or some of it, the thing was it was in the margin of possibility. If someone comes out and tells you there's been a gas attack in New York, and you know there's a war stirring in Europe, and you know we're getting involved eventually, someone runs up to your door and says, New York's been attacked. There's 
a possibility it could be true. So you're faced with what to do now. You either call the police and check the information or you get the fuck out of Dodge, man. Get your gas mask and go. But this is really history's first viral media phenomena. In 1938, listeners had to pick up a phone or walk next door. Now all we have to do is click a mouse. Who has a mouse? People do. So Sconce, who at Haunted Media, said the panic plays a symbolic function for American culture. We retell the story because we need a cautionary tale about the power of media. But the problem is that a lot of people talk about this in your freshman psychology class mm-hmm. as how the media can take over and how it can be too powerful and how it can be propagandistic. But the true moral to the story is not that. It's how we interact with the media. So I really do believe that there is some need for caution when viewing media. And I believe that scrutiny and credulity are necessary. Sometimes things we see in media can be fun stories. They can be ghost stories. They can tell us about this ghost that's haunting a guy that's living in New York. Or about these three kids that went out into the woods and were never seen again. And it's harmless to believe that to a degree. Yes. Sometimes they have an agenda. And sometimes they can be harmful. And so a little bit of caution, a little bit of credulity are necessary. Because one day, instead of someone running to your door and knocking and saying, the Martians are invading, they might share that on Facebook. You might see everyone else sharing it as well. And you may have to ask yourself... Is this just a story? Is it just a story? Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com I like to listen.